this episode, Justice League number five, cover dated September 1987. Welcome to the fifth episode of Justice League International Wahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not flying solo. Every single episode, I'll feature a different guest host. My co-host today is a fellow member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He likes Star Trek, action figures, and long walks on the beach. Folks, please help me welcome to the embassy the less attractive half of the Supermates podcasting duo, Mr. Chris Franklin. Welcome to the embassy, Chris. Thanks for being here. It's great to be here, but I gotta say, man, the transporter, I think my intestines are still back in Kentucky. I think it's a teleporter? Transporter would be Star Trek, you nerd. Take your pocket protector and your little toy Enterprise and get back on the ship, okay, pal? Teleporter, I'm sorry. You know, the guys showed up at my house just like the Animal Man cover. Right. (laughs) You know, and they set it up and it's all, I don't know, I'm just, teleporter, transporter, whatever. They scrambled my damn atoms and now I've got indigestion, so I'm gonna be cranky for the rest of this episode. That's fine. I would expect nothing less from you. And and reality is it's probably just you getting all excited about Star Trek Beyond, I'm sure. (laughs) That's a pretty hearty laugh right there, (laughs) Mr. Franklin. (laughs) So, folks, I was hoping to have a great guest on the show, but unfortunately I got stuck with Cindy's husband, Chris. (laughs) Just kidding. Folks, this is a big, big moment in the uh, you know history of JLI. This is the one-punch issue. And everyone already knows what that is. I'm not spoiling anything. You either have read the issue, or if you haven't read the issue, you already know about it. Isn't that fair to say, Chris? Yes, I think this resonates even beyond the series itself. This is infamous. I've read interviews from Giffen and DiMatteis where they talk about how, still to this day, at conventions, they get people constantly coming up to them and talking about One Punch and... I'm probably putting words in their mouth, but I kind of got the sense from the interviews reading, like, they're a little tired of it. You know, it was a gag they wrote 30 years ago that just won't go away. We've done other things, we swear. (laughs) Exactly. You're absolutely right. They've done a ton of things, but this one just hangs around and won't go away. (laughs) I'm looking forward to talking about it. Oh, yeah. When you announced this, I'm like, I've got to get on this episode. (laughs) Well, you know what? Actually... I'm going to get a little serious for a moment, folks. We try to produce a somewhat humorous podcast. I'm not saying whether we're successful or not, but I'm going to get real for just a moment. As Chris just mentioned, when I first announced it, he was going to be uh, absolutely on this episode. I've never talked about this on the show, I don't think, but the JLA podcast was actually born on December 13th, 2015. That's when it, the birth of the idea and the formation occurred. It had been rolling around in my head for a few years, actually. And, but thanks to a nudge from a buddy of mine named Doug Zawisha, it, it finally made me get past the point where I decided to move forward. And again, it was December 13th. And on that date, pretty much everything sprung fully formed from my brain. It was pretty amazing. I started planning out the coverage. All the segments were there. I knew a bunch of the guests that I immediately wanted to have. And there was no question who I needed to help me cover this one punch. Because, you know, it's Batman and and Guy Gardner duking out. No doubt about it. Chris was going to be here. My buddy. Well, I use that term loosely. uh, Buddy. Anyway, to cover the Batman aspect of the one punch. But... I was actually going to bring along another co-host. This was going to be the first episode with two co-hosts. I was going to bring along my buddy Sean Engel to represent Guy Gardner. Now, Sean loved Guy Gardner and even hosted a podcast celebrating Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner called Just One of the Guys. And Chris and I, we, we actually we were in touch right on December 13th, basically saying, okay, you're on, man, and you're on issue five. We 
We're going to get Sean. It's going to be great. But I knew Sean had been sick. So I figured I would ask Sean in a few weeks when he was starting to feel a little stronger. Well, unfortunately, three days after the initial concept of the JLI podcast was born, Sean died um, from complications related to pancreatitis. Um, if you didn't know him, Sean was an amazing guy. I think everyone in the podcasting community will agree with me that he was incredibly kind, he was generous with his time and attention, and he always managed to look on the positive side of a situation. His, his warmth was inspiring, and you always felt a little bit better after talking with him. And he would have been amazing on this episode. Truth, I mean, the, the humorous aspects of it, it would have been right up his alley. And this episode's going to be a little bit less for missing him. So hopefully, with, without sounding too cheesy, I would like to dedicate the, this episode to the memory of Sean Engel. He's a hell of a guy, and he's going to be missed. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I was really looking forward. I never got to record with Sean, but we'd written each other back and forth on each other's podcasts. And he was listening to my podcast, and I was listening to his podcast. And he'd invited Cindy and I on to Who True Freaks, and I just didn't think I was – I was up on Doctor Who enough. We're late bloomers when it comes to Doctor Who. But he invited us on anyway, and we were planning on doing an episode some sometime down the line. So I thought, oh, this will be great. I'll get to talk to Sean. It's going to be it's going to be a fun episode, but yeah, he's he's definitely going to be missed. Yeah, without a doubt. I wish you'd gotten a chance to be on Hootie Freaks. That was a fun show. I was I was a regular cast member there, and mm-hmm. I, I probably between just recording and then whatever happens after you finish recording a podcast. If you've ever done a podcast, you know what I mean. There's after chat. Probably spent something like forty hours chatting with him, and then I actually got to meet Sean face to face. We got to hang out in his hometown uh, shortly before he got sick. Just what a great guy! What a great guy! And that's the pun intended guy <laughs> right well with that I, I don't want to get too sad because i'd rather we celebrate sean than get too misty-eyed so with that yes. folks the show's got to go on so let's dive right into the business part of the show and uh, let's take a second to thank our sponsor folks this episode of the jli podcast is sponsored in part by instocktrades.com instock trades is your best online source for trades hardcovers and other collected editions all for up to 42 percent off with free shipping for orders of 50 dollars or more now each episode we like to select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the instock trades library usually is tied into that month's issue of JLI in some way, shape, or form. So, Chris, what you got? I have got Green Lantern Sector 2814 Trade Paperback Volume 3 from Steve Englehart, writer, and Joe Staten, artist. And the in-stock trades description reads, In this new collection of Green Lantern, number 194 through 200, John Stewart clashes with Guy Gardner eh, eh, to, see, <laughs> to see who will be the Green Lantern of Earth. And while Stewart battles Harbinger during the Crisis on Infinite Earths, Gardner recruits enemies of the Green Lantern Corps to stand against an evil that could destroy the entire universe, including the shark, Hector Hammond, Sonar, Goldface, and more. Uh, regular price is $16.99. In-stock trades price is $9.85. You save 42%. And those are some great issues. That's where, uh, spoiler warning, that's where Hal Jordan finally gets off his ass and comes back as Green Lantern in that storyline. So <laughs> You mean that time? Yeah, that time. Yeah, that time. <laughs> <laughs> Hal quits more than just about anybody. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. Now, I, I wish, personally, that they'd go ahead and do a fourth trade of that series because I, I actually read some of the Green Lantern Corps issues and the ones I read were just after this. The ones where like Kilowog goes to the Soviet Union and f- creates the Rocket Reds and stuff like that. I yeah. loved those issues when I read them at the time. Now I haven't read them in 30 years. Oh my gosh, we're old. Um, but <laughs> I mean, you're really old too. Anyway, oh, yeah. it, it would be fun to, to reread those. But good choice. And I think those obviously tie into the previous issues of Justice League you're talking about because Guy has returned bout with the Rocket Reds. Yeah. But it's, 
this is where I mean I think it's probably the collection before this, but this is where bowl cutted you know Guy Gardner comes from. So I thought it was a good pick. Yeah, no, good choice, excellent. Uh, my pick is Team Ups of the Brave and the Bold trade paperback. This collects the first seven issues of the J. Michael Straczynski run on not Batman Brave and the Bold, but Brave and the Bold, which was issues twenty seven through thirty three, and it features a whole bunch of different team ups, including Flash and the Blackhawks, Batman and Brother Power the Geek, which is crazy, then Batman and Dial H for Hero, Green Lantern and Doctor Fate. Uh, uh, uh. Aquaman mm-hmm. and the Demon, Adam and the Joker, Wonder Woman, Batgirl, and Zatanna. Now, issue 30 is the one that I'm particularly focused on. It was a fantastic issue. It's all about Hal Jordan encountering the classic Dr. Fate, which is sort of weird because this was an era where there was another replacement Dr. Fate because, boy, there's a whole bunch of replacement Dr. Fates. But this time you got the classic Kent Nelson Dr. Fate in space with Hal, and it turned into a, uh, a fairly emotional story for Hal. So it was so good. Oh, it was, it was incredible. So writers J. Michael Straczynski on the whole trade, art by Jesus Sayas. I think I'm saying that right, or probably saying it wrong. Page counts 176 pages, full color. Normally retails for $17.99. You get it for 42% off, so only $10.43. Folks, these are both great choices. Please head out to InStockTrades.com and pick these up. Check them out for all your other needs. In fact, I just ordered today a trade paperback called, it's like, actually, I kind of forgot what it's called. It's like Pulp Heroes or something like that, but it's Mystery in Space. And it reprints 33 issues, or stories, I should say, of Space Heroes. So it's got like Space Cabby, Space Ranger, you know, all these really great kooky stuff uh, from the old school DC stuff, like the Space Comics. I can't wait to get it. I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. You know, I saw an image from that new Justice League action cartoon. What do you think inspired? me to order it today <laughs> okay okay you saw space cabbie's cab okay. i did <laughs> I've, I've wanted to order it for probably a couple years actually but seeing that exactly what you just described justice league action and folks i guess we're pulling back the curtain a bit so by you're figuring out when the, we're recording this episode versus when it's released by what we're talking about but yes that looks awesome so uh, space cabbie that's awesome i love it he's coming up in a way down the line but in the starman issue so we'll get to talk about him on the <sighs> Our Starman Chronicles episodes of Supermate, so I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> Folks, if you want to hit us up on the social media, if you want to talk about Starman or Space Cabby or the infamous One Punch, please use the hashtag PoundFWPodcasts. That's the hashtag for our network. That will help us find comments. That will help us also argue about who's right, who's wrong, why Captain Marvel's a white bread, why Blue Beetle is should be leading the team, or whatever ridiculousness you guys might want to come up with. Or, oh, even better, Ange, go ahead. Use that hashtag for all your ridiculous comments about Creeper, please. Uh, or you can find me on Facebook under Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast, and on Twitter at the at sign JLI Podcast. And the more we hear from you guys, the more comments we get, the better off this is going to be because we're trying to build a community of JLI fans. It's, it's not about building the podcast community. It's about building a community of JLI fans coming together and just showing our support to DC, honestly, that we still love the book. And it's, thir- it's almost 30 years now, and we still want more trades. We want more action figures. We want more cartoon Appearances. We want to see these folks more. So make sure we hear from you. All right, this is probably the dullest part of the episode where we get to talk to Chris for a while. But Chris, if you would please, I ask all my guests, only because it's in your contract, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book and why did you fall in love with it? Never read it till you asked me to be on this show. Uh, I totally no. understand. <laughs> no, I actually bought Justice League number one off the stands. I was waiting for it with bated breath because I absolutely hated the previous Justice League. JLA Annual number two was the first comic that actually made me cry. <laughs> 
it, it, Surely, it, man. I mean, you got it. You got to figure. I was like nine, but it made me cry, and I was <laughs> mad at Aquaman for years afterwards because he freaking disbands the Justice League, and then like what four issues later, he's like finds Mira and takes off. It's like way to go, man. And I know Rob's like screaming at me right now, but I don't care. Well, uh, right, a couple things in there. To be fair, one, it, it's okay to be mad at Aquaman. That's no big deal. And the other is honestly, if if a hot redhead like Mira showed up, and you know, really, you wouldn't leave your your bros behind. Come on. This is true. This is true. <laughs> but you know, the whole bros before. Well, we won't go there. Uh, <laughs> they have a different saying in Atlantis, apparently. <laughs> right, right. And Cindy just said, "No, you won't." In the background. By the way, I, if you don't listen to Supermates, Chris's podcast, you're a fool. And one of the greatest things about the Supermates podcast is Cindy, his wife, regularly punches the living crap out of Chris. And my goal is, I know she can't hear what I'm saying, but my goal is to get you to say enough bad things that she will punch you during this recording. <laughs> Well, if fire was in this one, that would probably happen, but you know, <laughs> she's not. So, you know, and Canary's outfit is just like, you know, yeah, they just sucked all the sex out of Black Canary. How can you do that? I don't know. But Okay, anyway. now wait a minute. Hold on. We're doing this. That was actually in my notes later, but now I'm just going to have to say, even though I don't care, this is the chat with the guest part. I don't care. You've just screwed all that up. So <laughs> how dare you badmouth Black Canary's outfit? I realize that it's sort of like not a popular opinion to like her jazzercise costume, but I think she's totally hot in that costume. And I realize maybe it's like the mom jeans of superhero costumes, but I think she's sexy. It works for me. You see, now I like the birds of prey costume that she's in, you know, yeah. during the Chuck Dixon era that she's fully, she's fully covered later. I mean, I know at first she's got her legs exposed. She, when she's got the full, you know, uniform, whatever, it doesn't look like a leotard. It looks more like a, some kind of it jumpsuit. It looks brace painted on though. I mean, it's yeah. so come on. Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, that could be a dude in the, in the jazzercise outfit. Fit, you know, I mean, I don't no, know. No way, man. <laughs> it, it's working for me, bro. Can we go back to my my JLI story? Oh, I'm, I'm, God, do we have to? Are you still talking? Okay, go ahead. I feel Your like turn I'm, is I'm, taking forever. I'm at group and no one's listening to me. You know? <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> but anyway. So I suffered through the Detroit years off and on, but I begrudgingly bought that book hoping they'd fix the problem. So, you know, they did that issue 250, and I was like, everybody's on the cover, and then just Batman sticks around, which helped. And then he left before they all got killed. But uh, <laughs> He totally bailed <laughs> on them. He's like, later, losers. So Legends and then the ads for Justice League made me feel we were finally going to get a group of established characters to get behind that were worthy of the name Justice League. And so the day it came out, I went to the pharmacy. It was literally, literally up the street from my house. I was such a regular customer there that they actually let me go through the comics as they marked them off. Hmm. And so, you know, I got to clip the bundle and, you know, kind of leaf through them. But a buddy of mine went with me that day. He snagged the only copy of Justice League number one from the pile before I had a chance to. Uh And I was pissed. (laughs) (laughs) Justice League ruined friendships. Wow. Yeah. And he's like, I read Blue Beetle. Blue Beetle's in this. And I'm like, I don't freaking care. It's the Justice League. So he he kept that copy. But, you know, and I had to walk around town and ride my bike until I found another copy somewhere. And, you know, it was like, you know, looking for the freaking Holy Grail or something. And so when I found it, I was kind of like, oh, thank God, because I just had this. I mean, you know, you know, new standards. Oh, I, I remember. Oh, yeah. Sometimes you just.
just didn't find comics, period. I mean, I, my new Teen Titans collection is, you know, mostly from back issue bins at comic book shops because I could never find it on the stands. Uh, you know, it was always gone. So, yeah, it was it was a, a nearly traumatic experience. Uh, so <laughs> so that made me appreciate it that much more. And I really got behind it and got into it. And I followed it pretty much almost up until breakdowns. I kind of bailed a little bit before breakdowns. And I came back right when they did the, you know, the whole Justice League spectacular thing with when Jurgens came in and, and all that. And, and I, and I like that run as well, too. I was fully behind this version. I even had the poster mm. and the postcard set. You're talking about the class of 87 poster? I think so. Yeah. The one where they're all standing around. There's like curtains behind yeah, them. Yeah, and yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I had that on my wall and, uh, so jealous. and I, and I've got the postcard set somewhere. Okay. Yeah. But I don't know where it's at. I, I can see the Batman image and, and the Captain Adam. He was like super shiny in that one. Um, <laughs> You know, they had me pretty well through the through the whole series. I thought it kind of got a little like maybe when General Glory was introduced and became actual like cast member. That might have been a little bit of a bridge too far. But could, other than that, that, I loved it. I could see that. I, I loved it. So awesome. So who are your favorite JLI characters? Now, try to narrow, narrow it down. So anywhere between like one to three. OK. OK. Well, first of all, would be Batman uh, because he's my favorite character, period. And I never got through my phase shag, which, you know, that's a that's shag and I's, you know, number one contention amongst ourselves is the Batman phase theory he has. I totally do not agree with it. every uh, everybody goes through a Batman phase where they think Batman's the coolest guy ever. And they're really immersed in the Bat universe and they just like it's their favorite. And eventually you grow out of it. It's not to say that you dislike Batman. It's just you stop being a bat fanatic, and it just it just means you grew up, which tells me, Chris, you still haven't grown up yet, young man. I'm surrounded by action figures, so. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm married, and I have kids, so there, there. Cindy uh, <laughs> Enabler Franklin. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> But yeah, so that would, Batman would be number one, of course. Second would probably be Dr. Fate. Um, I, I'm a big Dr. Fate fan too, but I really only like the classic Dr. Fate, the Kent Nelson, okay. Nabu Dr. Fate. And in fact, I know you really like the Eric Linda Strauss, the miniseries and then the ongoing, which I did get us, I had a subscription to the ongoing. I, I did, I did, mm-hmm. but I really feel like DC kind of dropped the ball in not doing a classic fate series. Cause it was like Dr. Fate was probably at his most popular ever. And then they said, Oh, let's change him. And it was like, well, why don't you do a series? He never had his own series. He had the, the one-shot first-issue special, he had the flashbackups. But since the Golden Age, he didn't have a solo strip. Why don't you try it with the classic version first? Why would you just change it? I And I know it's Giffen and D- DiMatteis here, but I just that just blew my mind that they changed it like that. And, and I just couldn't... I couldn't get behind it. Let me address that for just a second. Uh, I will say, okay. yes, I absolutely love the Demetrius Sean McManus, Dr. Fate series. In fact, I even got a letter printed in one of the issues later on. Uh, I'm a huge fan of that run. But I agree with what you're saying. I think I would have also loved to have seen a classic Dr. Fate series. Because if I were to ask you, name three amazing classic Dr. Fate stories, but you can't mention First Issue Special or the flashbackups. What would you have? <laughs> 
<laughs> I'd probably have the one, the origin story I read in a in an old digest. Yeah. Paul Levitt's <laughs> and, origin, yeah, probably. Yeah. Maybe the Superpowers yeah, well, too many series, maybe, but <laughs> right, right, yeah. Oh, it's a but a solo story. Yeah, yeah I'd have almost nothing. nothing. Yeah, exactly. Now I've I've read the Golden Age archives, which by the way are phenomenal. As far as I, I have a hard time reading Golden Age comics, they just don't work for me. But the Golden right. Age Doctor Fate ones are so bonkers. They're great. They work. They work wonderfully. I think I would love a, a classic Dr. Fate series, but the fact that we've never really seen the character function in that way, I don't know if it would work or not. I don't know. Yeah. I did love the Demetrius McManus one. I did love the Dr. Fate character one. It was Hector Hall. So we'll see. Mm-hmm. You know, I guess, I guess he's back in Rebirth, and I think he's Kent Nelson again, actually. Oh, great, In the, uh, great, in the Blue yeah. Beetle book, if I remember right. Oh, nice. nice. Well, yeah, because they're going all back magic back with the, the Scarab again. So. And Ted Cord's in it. Yeah, that's right. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, the one other character probably that was a draw for me then and, and somewhat now is, is Captain Marvel uh-huh. because grew up watching the Shazam TV show. I was interested to see what they were going to do with Captain Marvel. To me, you had Batman from Earth 1, you had Doctor Fate from Earth 2, and you had Captain Marvel from Earth S. This was the promise of the crisis fulfilled, you know. They were in the Justice League. They weren't just guest stars. They were in it. Yeah. So, so even though I have my problems with Crisis, which we've hashed out before, over on, over uh, on Supermates, we had a big to do on Supermates. It. Yep. After we ate Mongolian, uh, <laughs> folks. As much as I hate Chris, I have sat down and had dinner with him twice now, face to face. Yes. Yes. Gave me indigestion yes. both times. <laughs> I think those characters in particular were, you know, the fulfillment of what Crisis was supposed to be, and they were in the Justice League. So. I thought that was really cool. So I was I was happy to see all three of those guys in the team. Of course, two of them didn't stick around. Right. And then Batman slowly faded away. But it's a testament to the creative team that I got invested in the other characters and stuck around almost through the whole run. I would agree. It, I mean, it is amazing that you come for the big guns and you're like, oh, yeah, some of the other guys are on the team. And by the end, Booster, Beetle, Fire, Ice, and Guy are everyone's favorites. They just You can't help mm-hmm. but love them, and they're not the ones you expected to love going in. No doubt about right. it. Right. Well, sir, I think... Uh, I've heard enough from you, so why don't we move on to our next segment, which is... Monitor Duty. And this is where we talk about comics that were on the shelves the same month as this issue featuring other JLI members. Now, this issue of Justice League number 5 was on the shelf on June 2nd, 1987. Thanks to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics for that. Other titles featuring JLI members on sale in June 1987. Let's touch on this. Now, before we even get into the members of the team, I have to say, so fifth issue, right? So that means DC was starting to get sales figures in by now. By the time they planned issue 5, they had sales figures in from issue number 1. And that is clearly obvious that the new Justice League's popularity was recognized by DC Editorial because by the time this issue hits the shelf, you also have in the same month Justice League Annual Number One. Five issues into the series, and they already get an annual. Now, if you're, uh, I'm not going to say any more about it because we're actually going to cover the annual on the next episode of the show. The Doctor Fate miniseries is on issue number three. We've talked about it before. J.M.D. Mateus and Keith Geffen. It was in the early days of the new Doctor Fate. However, that issue also features the JLI on the cover, no less. Wonder Woman number eight by George Perez and Len Wein, also featuring the JLI in a cameo and on the cover. Then Secret Origins number 18 featuring the Creeper, who's in this issue in a story by... Andy Helfer and Keith Giffen, those names should sound familiar. If you want to hear more on that, you can check out episode 18 of the Secret Origins podcast. So clearly, again, editorial saw the sales potential of the JLI already five months into the book, and were shoving them everywhere they could in the DC Universe. Mm-hmm. Which you noticed the Justice League Detroit didn't hardly show up anywhere. So If you talk 
any more smack about Justice League Detroit, I'm going to have to take you behind the woodshed, sir. I love the Justice League Detroit, okay? I recognize the flaws, but I love it warts and all, okay? Okay, okay. All right, so why don't we jump into the current members of the JLI? You want to go first? Sure. Batman number 411, uh, that was more of the Max Allen Collins run. Yay! Uh, I really did not like that run. I did not like his new Robin origin. I did not like any of the issues he did. And you did not like I'd it with said, Green Eggs and Ham? I did not like Green Eggs and Ham. I did not like Max Allen Collins, said Sam I am. Uh, <laughs> we'll get into that later, but I think that was pretty much an epic misfire. Uh, on Denny O'Neill's part there, and, and he'll even admit to it uh, nowadays. So, on the other hand, in Detective Comics number 578, we had Batman Year 2, Part 4, and Tom McFarlane took over that series within a series after Alan Davis left after the first issue, and he actually, McFarlane, swiped the cover from a panel inside the issue, which was really odd, and you didn't see that very often back then, but I like this story, and I think if Davis had stayed on the arc, it might have had more weight to it, but I do admit, at the time, I liked Todd McFarlane's work a lot. I thought it was very exciting, but even then, I still missed Alan Davis. I got to make a comment about that. When when the Batman movie came out in 1989, somehow, I have no idea how, but I got my hands on a press kit for the Batman 89 movie, and it came with a mm-hmm. lot of different pieces, like a notepad and all this different stuff, but it all had this little iconic silhouette of Batman drawn by Bob Kane. And it, and it was, <laughs> do you know the story behind this? Yes. Okay. And I'm, if I get anything wrong, feel free to correct me. So this this little image of Batman looked awesome. And then it comes out, I don't know, a year or two later, that it turns out Bob Kane actually swiped that version of Batman from Todd McFarlane, of all people. Yes, and I have actually heard, I don't, I don't have confirmation on this, but I have heard that much of Kane's work around that period was actually done by Greg Theakston. Really? I've heard that. I don't know if it's wow. true. If he just helped him, if he like inked it, went over it, but yeah. So I can't imagine Bob Kane taking credit for something other people did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. Okay, we're still on Batman, but Teen Titans Spotlight number 14 features an excellent and mostly forgotten Nightwing solo story by Michael Reeves, who would go on to be a writer on Batman the Animated Series, and Stan Walk, where Dick has to track down and save a captured Batman. And this goes a long way to mending the fences that have been broken down in their relationship, but it's unfortunately ignored in later stories. This is like probably Nightwing's first solo story. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, it predates, you know, of course, any miniseries or his ongoing, and he'd just pretty much been in the Titans. Or Ponytails so, or anything like that. Or Ponytails. <laughs> he's, in the, he's in the disco outfit. It's got a Jerry Bingham cover, so it's like, you know, all sorts of cool Batman stuff going on there. So. Jerry Bingham. I love Jerry Bingham. Mm-hmm. Also on the shelves that time was Outsiders number 23 featuring Batman, uh, Mike W. Barr, I guess Jim Aparo got the month off, it's David Ross was the artist on this one, but it features the people's heroes from the Soviet Union and the Force of July. I have never read this Outsider series, but every month we touch on it, I read the description, and it makes me desperately want to read it. I mean, just... Mike, no one does theme teams better than Mike W. Barr, but putting mm-hmm. the people's heroes from the Soviets and putting the Force of July together, it's just like a, a patriotic awesomeness. All right, Green Arrow Longbow Hunters number two was also on the shelf, which is Mike Grell's redefining miniseries. Uh, so we're a little ways into that. And it features Black Canary, so pretty important for the Justice League International. And by the way, just a quick message to the Arrow television series. Mike Grell called, and he says, you're welcome. So, But you can just ask the folks <laughs> over at the Warlord Worlds podcast about that. Right, Stephen Amell, thanks you. Yes. <laughs> uh, 
We had Blue Beetle number 16. That was Len Wein still writing the series, but Ross Andrew had become, I think he'd become the regular penciler, hadn't he? Hadn't he taken over from I think he'd taken over Paris from Paris, Paris by that point, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got Blue Beetle tracking down a killer of homeless people is in search for an experimental leukemia cure. I had a buddy that, like, this the same buddy that stole my Justice League issue. <laughs> oh, he, didn't, he didn't steal it, but, you know, he, he grabbed it from out from under me. He was the guy that was the, the Blue Beetle fan, and I, I didn't buy the series, but I read his. There you go. Maybe that's why I got canceled. I don't you know. You got him back. You got him back for it. Oh, you're the reason right. it got canceled because you didn't buy it. Okay. I gotcha. Right. Booster Gold number 20 was on the shelves. Dan Jurgens and Arn Star produced that one. It's part two of Booster Gold's battle with the Rainbow Raider because it needed multiple parts. Bear in mind that at this point, Booster Gold's only five months away from cancellation. Well, when you're fighting Roy G. Bibolo or whatever his name is, what do you expect? When Roy G. Bibolo <laughs> takes multiple issues to defeat, yeah. <laughs> now let's move on to future members of the JLI. Yes, we have Big Bardo in Action Comics number, yeah, in Action Comics number 592 by John Byrne, part one of the infamous Superman and Barta make a porno story. <laughs> uh. Byrne, now think about this, and I never really thought about this before, but Byrne had two storylines in mainstream newsstand comics that involved the main characters being pulled into to the world of pornography. In Fantastic Four, She-Hulk gets topless photos taken of her, and then they are published in a porno mag. Hmm. And then you have this, where Sleaze manipulates Barda and Superman into making a porno film. <laughs> now, I'm not saying this is a cry for help, but it may be a cry for help. <laughs> <laughs> or perhaps just a fetish. <laughs> Yes, maybe. <laughs> also on the shelves was Captain Adam number seven, you know, our shiny member soon to join the team, by Kerry Bates and Pat Project. Oh, the beloved Pat Project. Oh, I miss his Firestorm. Mm. And uh, this issue featured plastique, and Captain Adam's atomic armor is breached, and you can only imagine how that's going to turn out. Also on the shelves was Fury of Firestorm number 63. So exciting. I don't get to talk about it very often. Uh, Captain Adam guest stars in this issue as well as Firestorm goes all Superman 4, the quest for peace. Also guest starring <laughs> the Suicide Squad and... And again, here's another one. Next issue features the Justice League International. They're everywhere. Now, was Nuclear Man in this in this issue? <laughs> no, Firestorm <laughs> actually represented Superman in the Quest for Peace role for this series. Oh, I, I thought maybe there was like a little tiny, you know, Nuclear Man outfit that that Firestorm used his, his powers to like make big or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going way too deep into Superman four. I'm That's sorry. okay. That's okay. Someone had to. <laughs> Right, somebody had somebody had to watch it. Um, you had Hawk- <laughs> we all thank you for that too, by the way, <laughs> doing it <Yeah>. for us. <laughs> anytime, anytime. Hawkman number fourteen. Uh, that uh, Dan Mishkin was writing it now, and Richard Howell was still on pencils. Uh, the murder investigation started last issue. It continues in this one. This time, it's Hawkman versus Bolt, the utility supervillain. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was born from Blue Devil, and it was their gift to the rest of the DC universe. So, well, I guess it sort of, it sort of makes sense, because Dan Mishkin wrote this, and Dan Mishkin helped create Bolt for Blue Devil. But you're absolutely right. right. Bolt became absolutely... I love that, the utility character. And uh, he was also great in role-playing games. He just he was the perfect bad guy when you just needed somebody to throw at your, at your heroes. He would have made a great action figure. He would have made a great superpowers figure. Yes, he would have. Oh. Squeezed his legs and those little wing things under his arms spread out, like that Batman one they made a few years yes. later. Yeah. You know, they yeah. even went as far as to make a kid version of him in, in Teen Titans. He had, like, a, his son became Deathbolt. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. All right. Also on the shelves, and this is this is pretty amazing. We we we've mentioned it almost every month, but Watchmen was still on the shelves in issue form, and this was the final issue, folks. This was uh, the conclusion, and features the analogs of the Charlton characters of Blue Beetle and Captain Atom. I think it goes without saying, everyone who's a comics fan has read Watchmen at some point, but I, I can only imagine the discussions in the comic shops once people got done reading issue twelve, going, "What the? Hmm? Did I just happen? A giant squid? Seriously? Yeah." <laughs> <laughs> and, and some guys like, yeah, and Dr. Midnight one day is going to recreate the DC universe and he'll change everything and make it dark and then he'll change it back. And some guys like, yeah, you're nuts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> this is the darkening of the, of, of comics. To, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We also had Flash annual number one. And I know Wally West isn't in the league yet, but I had to comment that Wally sleeps with yet another strange woman in this issue. She's like some, if I remember right, she's some like some ninja woman or something. And, uh, I just have to ask, does the speed force cancel out STDs? I don't know. <laughs> Metabolism goes so fast. It just burns that crap right out of him. <laughs> burns it out of him. Lucky for Linda. So, all right, folks. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. With, I never with, thought about with that. With that classy Ooh. moment from our friend Chris, uh, we're going to go ahead and go to a podcast promo break we're here a commercial from some of our other friends in the podcast sphere and when we come back we're going to talk about justice league number five yay are you a geek looking for love do you long to find discussion on that special comic tv episode movie or toy that's just right for you then why not try supermates the husband and wife geek cast Chris and Cindy Franklin can match you with that certain something to satisfy your genre-related longings, no matter the subject. Superheroes. But Robin's like, that was really nice of you, Batman. He's like, I had the room loaded with kryptonite. I can turn it on at any moment. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's, you're talking about, now think about this. It's an apartment building owned by Batman. Do you not think that Batman doesn't have their place booked? Sci-fi. I don't know. You talk about being a sex symbol and stuff like that. I mean, I know a lot of girls thought, you know, William Shatner was it, but I had a, the biggest crush on George Takai. I, 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 I did. <laughs> I thought, you know. Sorry about that. <laughs> Horror. And then when we see the Wolfman for the first time, he's in, I don't know, we don't A long sleeve shirt, shirt and a dark pair of pants. Pants with a belt. With a belt, that's right. <laughs> and his shirt's buttoned up all the way, too. Yeah, yeah. And his so, arms. So after he changes into this ferocious beast who can't talk and doesn't seem to be able to think beyond just attacking things. He, he has lots of dexterity. He went through his closet and... I like this outfit better. Action figures. I actually had... All the figures and all the accessories up to a certain point. I really, literally did collect them all, you know. Including Shira. I was going to get to that, but... Nah. Chris and Cindy have found their own happiness through discussions like this. I could be friends with him. I could be down with this version of the ultra-humanoid. You could be friends with the dude who put his brain inside a mutated albino ape. I married you! <laughs> Oh! If you're tired of searching for geek love, then sign up with Supermates for free at supermatescomic.blogspot.com or on iTunes. 
And we're back, folks. Now, just want to remind you, as we do the recap of the issue, if you want to see some of the panels and pages from this issue, head out to the Fire and Water Podcast website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You'll find all the different entries for the shows. And just look for JLI number five gallery post. And that's where you'll see a lot of the images from this issue. So you can follow along and you get to see the infamous one punch without having to dig it out out of your 17 lawn boxes that are in your mom's garage. <laughs> All right, Justice League number five. From DC Comics, cover dated September 1987. Cover price, only 75 cents, so three shiny quarters. Cover by Kevin McGuire and Terry Austin. Nice to see Terry Austin again. We haven't seen him since, uh, I believe, issue number one. So when he, uh, mm-hmm. he inked that issue. Chris, you want to walk us through the cover? Yes, we have a fighting mad, <laughs> red-eyed, teeth-bearing Guy Gardner. He's staring right at us. He's nearly breaking the fourth wall of the cover, and his head's almost like popping off the cover. Holding him back are the Martian Manhunter and Captain Marvel, who seem to be struggling in their task, amazingly, as Guy is apparently not wearing his Green Lantern power ring. The cover copy reads, It had to happen. Batman versus Guy Gardner. Showdown. <laughs> what a great cover. Oh my gosh. It is gorgeous. Yep. It's an iconic cover. It was homaged like a little over a year later by Eric Larson for that Doom Patrol cover. I think it's number 13 with like negative woman's like, you know, all coming out. It's the exact same cover. Oh yeah. I know the one. I didn't even put it together. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like a direct homage or it's not a swipe. It's an homage. That's how quickly this became an iconic cover. It's, it's probably, other than issue number one, maybe the most iconic cover of the series, I would bet. Well, it's it, outside of the, uh, I would also then say the mirrors of issue number one, issue 24 and the Antarctica right. and all the others. Uh, once you get past that pose, let's put it that way. Yes, I would say right. this is probably one of the most remembered ones. And, and I think it says a lot about the whole sort of workplace comedy direction of the series, that the cover actually focuses on you know the interpersonal problems of the team itself. Forget the gray man. Forget what happens to Dr. Fate. It's all about two members on the team hating each other. That's, that, that's mm-hmm. wild. And it does show you the direction, you know, for, like a little microcosm of where this series is really targeting. You know, something I will, I will say, it's a minor nitpick. I have I never thought about it till we were going to do this episode. And I was really like looking at the comic in a, with a critical eye. Now, in what universe would Guy Gardner, especially without his power ring, be a match for the strength of Martian Manhunter or Captain Marvel? Because they look like they're really trying to hold him back. That's a good point. That's a very good point. <laughs> These guys rival Superman in the strength department, yeah. but you know, but who cares? It's a great image. Right. So. <laughs> you just got to go with it, I guess, at that point. Right. I like the color of the background. I know some people don't like bl- blank backgrounds or solid colors, but there's really not enough room to have any other detail because you are so close up on the these guys and you can even see the veins popping out of Jean's arm you know it's it's really cool and Captain Marvel's I mean Captain Marvel's hair's messed up how often does that happen right yeah, but I like that rust color in the background you didn't see that very often on a comic covers well the, I, the, I sharp. the solid color backgrounds not really anything new because you know just League number four with booster gold it just had you know had the once you got to where the logo is there was a solid color background there as well same thing with issue mm-hmm. number six which we're gonna I'm dipping into the future a bit but again a solid color background and so it's something that they did a lot in this series but i think you're right it's effective you know if they put the interior of the league headquarters behind them with a bunch of busy lines and computer banks and screens it would just it would just distract from what the image is trying to convey exactly i think it's well done on their part well done Mm -hmm. all right well so let's get into the issue okay we have plot and breakdowns by keith giffen script by jm d mateus 
penciler Kevin McGuire, inker Al Gordon, letterer Bob Lappin, colorist Gene D'Angelo, and editor Andy Helfer. And the story in this issue is called Gray Life, Gray Dreams. Our story begins in Stone Ridge, Vermont. A gray-haired narrator dressed in drab clothes describes the town as gray. Gray people, gray lives, gray deaths. We see the townspeople respond to a car accident where a man has fatally crashed his car into a brick wall. Despite the townspeople reacting as most would with concern for this victim, the gray-haired man still finds the reactions and voices of concern are just shades of gray. As he walks down the chaotic street, he thinks he would laugh or weep if he could, but he can do neither. He is the gray man. The gray man observes Dr. Fate descending toward his tower in Salem, Massachusetts. He knows of Fate's origin as an agent of the Lords of Order, and despite his lack of emotions, the gray man somehow hates him. As he stares at the doctor, the mage feels his eyes from afar. Fate leaves his tower and disappears in a flash of light. He is coming for the gray man, and the gray man is ready. We cut to Gotham City sometime later, and television journalist Jack Ryder is recording another of his scathing editorials targeting the newly formed Justice League. After the taping, Jack gets a tip from a young intern about trouble in Stone Ridge involving Dr. Fate. This, of course, piques Ryder's interest so much that he offers the kid $100 if he keeps the whole thing on the QT. Ryder makes a call to his superiors asking for a camera crew. He's planning on nailing the Justice League's hides to the wall. What an ass. No kidding, a jackass, I should say. <laughs> uh, in Stone Ridge, the gray man monologues to the captured Dr. Fate in the local theater because he's a villain. He tells Fate of how he had been imprisoned for centuries in a gray, dreamless world, unable to sleep or dream, and he blames Dr. Fate. But he's free now. Now he's in control. Now, although he screams this, he notes his voice is still a gray monotone. He remarks he's been dead for hundreds of years. He recalls his life before, how others deemed him a wizard, a sorcerer, a holy man. The skull-capped cloaked man probed the mysteries of existence, surrounded by hooded acolytes. His probings continued for years until he finally penetrated the veil of illusion, only to look upon the lords of order themselves. He saw them in their true form, as a giant globulous orb of light. He had gained the knowledge he sought, but the lords of order were not happy. He had searched too deeply. He must be punished. The gray man was cast to a barren isle. There he sat and didn't dream and didn't sleep. He was charged with collecting the dream essence of the dead and then returning them to the Lords of Order. He could not leave the Isle, so he would send lifeless projections of himself that he could control from afar. He wondered for centuries, why did they give him this task? Was it a meaningless punishment? Then one day he realized the Lords of Order needed the dream essence, as it was the very fabric of mystic energy. And so he began to collect some of the essence for himself. He was then able to break free of his prison and capture Dr. Fate. But now he questions what he wants to do with this newfound power. Should he kill Fate, the Lords of Order? He decides it would be more fitting to set all of his other selves free. Free to suck the dream essence not from the dead, but from the living. He will make man just like him unable to dream, and prone to madness. Outside of the Rialto Theater, which is showing The Living Daylight, starring Timothy Dalton, by the way, <laughs> gray men touch the citizens going about their day. All right, well, we're at the halfway point. I'll go ahead and take over here. Oh, oh, oh no, hold on, buddy. What? No, it's, we, we reached the halfway point, so it's my turn. I, I don't give a crap for this <laughs> issue. Yeah, the, the, the rules do not apply because, one, the Justice League, other than Dr. Fate, has not been in this story, and I came on here to do the one-punch thing, okay? <sighs> what? If you look in my fire and water contract, it's stipulated in there that Chris will get to do the one-punch sequence when he does this episode. 
So take it up with my lawyer, Rob. I see. I'm not real worried about that, but fine. All right. You know what? Tell you what. I'll I'll just sit here and Google some cosplay pictures. I'll let you do this, but I will say I think Cindy needs to switch you to decaf, pal. All right. Okay. I'm just been chugging Mountain Dews all day, getting ready for this. So okay. Here we go. <laughs> Justice League headquarters, Happy Harbor, Rhode Island. Guy Gardner has had it. He's up in Batman's face, wagging his finger at him. Guy demands Batman turn the team's leadership over to him, and Batman responds. I'd sooner turn it over to Captain Marvel. <laughs> the captain doesn't take this too well. Mr. Miracle thinks to himself that Batman and Guy's constant bickering is getting tiresome. He may just have to quit the team to get away from it. New recruit Booster Gold is dumbstruck by the confrontation. Guy is out to prove who's top dog on the team, and Batman remarks that they aren't in the kennel, so Guy should stop acting like a mongrel. That was the final straw for Guy. He takes off his power ring and hands it to Blue Beetle. When Beetle retorts with a smart remark... Guy tells him he's next. As Guy approaches Batman, Beetle tosses Guy's ring over his shoulder, and Captain Marvel steps in, apparently attempting to use the wisdom of Solomon to smooth things over. He reminds Batman that his team leader, he should set a good example and not stoop to Guy's level. Batman rebuffs Marvel, reminding him of his years of experience. He knows what he's doing, and the captain should keep out of this. As Marvel storms off muttering something under his breath, Batman and Guy's verbal confrontation continues, with Batman ultimately declaring Guy is all bark and no bite. Guy responds, oh, I bite, all right. I bite. Guy leaps toward Batman, his left hand drawn back, ready to strike. And then Batman's fist jackhammers into Guy's face with a bonk. <laughs> Guy's nose erupts in blood as he falls backwards, and then he's out cold, his back flat on the floor. Mr. Miracle gives Batman points for efficiency, while Beetle laughs, One punch! One punch! Just then, Martian Manhunter and Black Canary arrive. John wonders, Is that guy on the floor? Canary asks if he's dead, then figures they wouldn't be that lucky. <laughs> Beetle fills in... <laughs> Beetle fills in the latecomers. Guy is out cold, and Batman belted him. Batman belted him? Canary asks. Batman is glad to see Manhunter. Now their meeting can begin. Beetle is still laughing about the one punch. Jean smirks at Canary's reaction. Batman belted him, and I missed it? Oh, God, I'm depressed. <laughs> She's got the hands raised and everything. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. So good. Do you mind if I take over now, Mr. Franklin? I will allow it. Thank you so very much for letting me speak on my own show. Anyway... Batman is all business once the punch is over, so he calls the meeting to order, and Martian Manhunter suggests they further investigate into Maxwell Lord. Booster Gold's obviously feeling a little guilty about the whole situation with Max, given the way Booster was introduced to the team. The problem is, Booster simply doesn't know anymore about Max. Batman reassures Booster, saying that Booster is a member of the League, and they trust him. <laughs> Enjoy that, folks, because that ain't going to last. Cooey, cooey, cooey. It doesn't even take that long, my friend. Uh, Oberon interrupts the meeting to Batman's annoyance, explaining that the monitor screen would like an urgent word with Batman. Oberon's choice of words sort of perplexes Batman. The monitor screen would like to have a word with you. The monitor screen? Sure enough, the screen itself has grown a mouth with lips and teeth and all. It's pretty creepy. Turns out that mm -hmm. Dr. Fate is animating the screen from his captivity, warning the League of the Gray Man and insisting they come to Stone Ridge, Vermont. Now, in between panels, Fate shares all of Gray Man's entire plan with Batman. We missed the info dump. But Dr. Fate's power then wanes, and the creepy mouth disappears, thankfully. Mr. Miracle does some quick calculations on his supercomputer, and he determines that the total world population will be affected in 52 hours. Amazing. The reoccurrence of 52 in DC Comics all the way back to 1987. Amazing. Whoa, Dan DiDio's head just exploded. <laughs> now, now, Batman states, 52 hours to save the world. Manhunter responds, we've done it before, on a tighter schedule. And Booster's like, you have? 
<laughs> Batman instructs Captain Marvel to fly ahead to Stone Ridge to reconnoiter, but don't take any action unless absolutely necessary. Now, Captain Marvel is still bristling from their, his previous encounter with Batman just a moment ago, and he responds, Right, wouldn't want me screwing up anything, at least not until I've had years of experience. And as Marvel departs, Batman expresses his frustration with Marvel's surprising rebellious comments. Blue Beetle calls Batman out, though, stating that Batman treats Captain Marvel like a bathroom mat. Then Captain Marvel gets a rare page all to himself. We don't, we don't see that very often in this book. Mm-mm. And he, he's thinking through his situation with the JLI. He's struggling with being mad at Batman and yet sorry for his own brusqueness because you know, he's a nice guy. Marvel recognizes that while he's probably the League's most powerful member, he doesn't feel like he fits in. He feels completely over his head and thinks perhaps he does need more experience before being part of the League. Marvel arrives just outside of Stone Ridge, Vermont, to find Jack Ryder's hot seat news van abandoned. On the ground nearby is a man with a serious head injury. The man's rambling about the whole world going crazy. Well, Marvel being the good Samaritan, he picks up the man and flies him towards town to get him help. Later on, the bug airship sets down just outside of Stone Ridge. Batman's hoping to sneak in, but Martian Manhunter believes that the Gray Man's power is enough that he probably already knows they're coming. Realizing that Captain Marvel's missing, Batman indicates that if something has happened to Captain Marvel, it's Marvel's own fault. Martian Manhunter then mentions to Batman that he's being too hard on Captain Marvel. And this is becoming a reoccurring theme, you'll notice. Batman acknowledges that he's hard on everyone, which Black Canary does not miss a beat agreeing with. <laughs> As they depart the bug, Martian Manhunter senses a strange, disturbing presence, and they hear a noise from the trees. Batman says, I believe it's called giggling. And the camera pans up, and we see the bizarre hero called The Creeper. He responds with, Or perhaps it was a Twitter. I know for a fact it wasn't a guffaw. And Batman shouts, The Creeper! And Creeper hilariously responds with, Where? <laughs> and the eagle-eyed readers will note that Creeper is carrying a red bucket of paint. Now, it's not spelled out anywhere in the issue, but I suppose he was planning to paint the town red in Stone Ridge, which I just find hysterical. <laughs> Further funny banter continues between Batman and the Creeper uh, about this supposed shared history with some ridiculous comments, and Creeper shares that he saw Captain Marvel go into town, and this was a very bad move for Captain Marvel because he does not have the right mindset, as Creeper put it. Creeper then climbs a hill to show the Justice League the town of Stone Ridge that lies beyond. Creeper croons, it's my kind of town! Because the town has been transformed into something bizarre and grotesque. It's like something reimagined by H.R. Geiger of the Aliens franchise, but with a wider color palette. (laughs) Next issue, Gray Madness. There it is. Issue number five. So what'd you think, buddy? Doesn't Ryan live in Stone Ridge? (laughs) Ryan Daly? I think he does live in Stone Ridge, Vermont. I think he does. That explains a lot. You're not kidding. (laughs) I love this issue. Just right off the bat, I love this issue. This is this is a great. It's such a great setup. But we'll get into that. But I like that Giffen and De Mateus show that the townspeople they do react to this car crash. It's it's a nice opening. It's like you see the town in the distance, and then you 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 see the city street. And I mean, it's just like this awful thing has happened in the middle of Mayberry. That's what it looks like. Yeah. They do react to it, despite what he says. I always thought the gray man looked like Harlan Ellison, mm. and he's just as cranky. So, you know, <laughs> well, I, I love on that same page where Bob Lappin, the pen, um, the letterer, did these really nice gray man text box. Now they're not gray; mm. they're all kinds of different colors. But just the font, he and it's not really a font because it's handwriting, but it's almost like a cursive style handwriting he has. And it's really wonderful and immediately identify. You can tell when gray man's thinking. Yeah, and it's legible, which a lot of times when comic letterers would do that. 
it would be hard to read. I think about the Avengers run of, of Kurt Busiek and, and George Perez, and I, I love that. But freaking Thor's font drove me insane trying to read that. Yeah. But Gray Man's font here works. I like that. It's really well done. Man, I know you've got to be feeling the same way. Kevin McGuire just draws an awesome Dr. Fate. The word I have for it is scrumptious. <laughs> I love his Dr. Fate so much. It looks so good. Like the close-up of the helmet even, where you see Kent's eyes through the helmet and the and the lighting on the helmet and the shape of it. Oh, it just looks totally badass. It's so good. I think one of the reasons I like Maguire so much, especially at, at you know the young age I was when this came out, is because his characters look so real. I mean, they look like people in costumes. I mean, oh, yeah, they were a little... You know, they weren't like normal people. They were obviously in really good shape. Right. Uh, but, but they did look like, you know, before we even really knew, obviously cosplay existed, but before it became so rampant, but it looked like people in really good costumes. We hadn't seen a lot of these, you know, now we see a lot of these characters in live action, but we had a very limited number of them. If you don't count those legends of the superhero specials, uh, <laughs> in live, in live action. And so, I mean, you just imagine if somebody was in a Dr. Fate costume, they'd look like this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. You make a great point because all through the Bronze Age, even though you're right, people were wearing superhero costumes, it looked more like that was their body than the clothes they were wearing, you know? Mm -hmm. Superman's muscles yeah. were incredibly defined, so how tight did that shirt have to be, really, kind of thing? It looked like that was more of his body than clothes, where here, they're clearly wearing clothes. And, you know, I, as much as you knock Black Canary's Jazzercise outfit, that is clothes, <laughs> clearly. Yes. And, you know, one of the, another thing we always talk about with Ken McGuire is he's, he's well known for facial expressions. Well, even this Dr. Fate page, where Dr. Fate, he's wearing a helmet. You cannot see his expression. And yet, when he senses the gray man, you know, his head just quickly whoosh, turns to the side because he sensed it. And somehow, even with the helmet, McGuire pulled it off. Yeah. I, I think Kevin McGuire might be the best actor that's ever worked in comics. I mean, as far as the characters actually are acting through his pencils. You know, I, I, I can't think – I think Tony Harris is another one of them from Starman, mm -hmm. and me and Cindy have actually talked about that, that he has a lot of these smirky in-between faces that real people make, yeah. you know, and, and, and McGuire is really good at that. Just the eyes, Fate's eyes here, they're just squinting enough like he's concentrating like somebody's watching me. Mm -hmm. It's just fantastic. I mean, we could talk about these two, these two Dr. Fate pages all day. Well, my, my love of Dr. Fate, I, you're right, I could do this forever. <laughs> right. I just wish we'd got to see the inside of the tower, what he would have done with that. Oh, that, that would have been, been crazy. The Escherness of it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Moving on to the Jack Ryder scene. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what did they ever, and I, and I know you don't want to go too far ahead because I know you're doing each issue. But do they ever really explain what what Ryder's angle is with bashing the league? I mean, I can't recall if he appears much in the series after these issues. And no, he really doesn't. And, uh, once the yeah. once the Creeper Line story finishes, Ryder's story is kind of finished, if I remember right. Now I, I could be wrong, but I have reread him in recent months. But I don't remember Creeper really or Jack Ryder playing another role once that this this storyline's over. But yeah, he's definitely got a mat on for him. Now I just kind of always took it as you know what he's a sensationalist journalist and he's looking for an angle and he found. It. He's got his niche. He, you know, when people know, think of the JLI, they want to hear someone rant about it, they know to switch over to Jack Ryder. 
is kind of how I took this. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, and it kind of, I guess, it kind of plays into he was kind of doing that stuff before in the old Creeper stories, I guess, but it even plays into Legends in a way because this came out of Legends, and obviously the heroes have recently been dragged through the mud by yeah. Godfrey and all those, you know, and all that. So I guess it makes sense. I couldn't remember. I was pretty sure that this is the Creeper storyline, like you said, and then he's gone. So it made me. It always made me wonder: was he supposed to stick around? He's in the the Who's Who entry in the '87 update, as you well know. I'm glad you brought that up. You're absolutely right. In a, in a month or two, Who's Who Update 87 would release their issue with the Justice League. They have the team shot. It's it's sort of a, an homage to issue number one's cover. And you're absolutely right. The Creeper is dead square in the front. Mm-hmm. And I sent a message to JMD Mateus asking him about it just recently, saying, hey, was the Creeper supposed to be an ongoing member on the team? And he said he had no recollection of that whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it could be that, you know, McGuire was drawing it and Creeper was in the in the issues those months when he was working on it and he figured he was going to be joining the team. Who knows? Did Giffen, I mean, I know he did, did the Creeper origin in Secret Origins this this month, but did he do another Creeper thing before that, like in a backup feature somewhere? I, I, it seemed like there was a Creeper backup somewhere pre-Crisis, but I can't remember. I, it might not well, have he, been him. The Creeper appeared in World's Finest. I remember that much because that was – Yeah. Or at least, well, I say that. I'll, I'll tell you what I remember. is The first time I ever saw the Creeper was in a World's Finest comic. And what I may be thinking of is it was an ad. It could have been an ad, but I seem to recall he was actually in the issue. I remember being a very young kid, just confused as heck by the Creeper. I did not understand – as an adult, fully grown adult, I'm still confused as heck by the Creeper. <laughs> I don't get him. I'm not a fan. Sorry, Ange. When I first saw the Creeper, I thought, is, is this guy connected to the Joker somehow? Because he, he looks kind of like the Joker. He's laughing a lot. He's nuts. He's, what is this? It's like a half Spider-Man, half Joker. I didn't get it. And then you recently pointed out that there is a connection between the Joker and Creeper in the cartoons. Is that right? Right, yeah. The Creeper, they were trying to figure out, they wanted to use the Creeper on the animated series in the first version. They had a model sheet designed for him, and they couldn't figure out what to do with him. In the interim between the two series, of course, uh, they changed the, they streamlined designs for the new Batman adventures. Somebody came up with the idea of actually tying him to the Joker. So Jack Ryder is at the Ace Chemical Plant or whatever they called it in the series where the Joker's origin occurred. And he's like, it's the 10th anniversary of the Joker Joker, you know, coming on the scene and, and he's reporting live from there. And the Joker like knocks him into the vat of the chemicals that the Joker fell into. Uh. And so he be kind of, he kind of becomes another version of the Joker, but he decides to be more of a super heroic type, even though he's even actually more crazy than the Joker on that series. Wow. And he falls for Harley Quinn and it's a, it's a great episode. I think it's called Beware the Creeper. Oh, that's a great name for it. Well, speaking of the Jack Ryder scene, there's a panel in here I absolutely love is when, when they yell, and they go out of the scene and they show the floor director and he's completely lit in the, you know the studio lights and he's just all in shades of yellow and he's just got like a thumbs up and it's just a great line work piece because there's not any color other than yellow it sort of stands out to me I think it's a beautiful panel yeah it's great and he's just this normal balding mustache guy but he looks great <laughs> bless you balding man <laughs> yes yes we appreciate you as balding man exactly uh, <laughs> this intern mm-hmm. that that talks to writer he has a very distinct Distinctive look. Yes. And I'm trying to figure out, he's got a David Letterman, Late Night with David Letterman shirt on. And he he even kind of looks a little like David Letterman because he's got the gap tooth look thing going on. But he looks like a young Michael Richardson. He's, he's got like a perm up top and a mullet, and it is a mullet. Uh, it, unlike it Superman, is. It, it is, absolutely is. It, it is a mullet. So, 
<laughs> invoking that horrid bait. It's another one of those, did McGuire base him on somebody that he knows? That's probably the case. It's- well, no, I read your notes in advance because I didn't trust you. And I saw where you mentioned you thought it looked like David Letterman because it's always kind of bugged me too. Who was this guy supposed to be? You're absolutely right, dude. That is David Letterman. Because if you, okay. he is wearing the late night with David Letterman shirt. He's got, as you said, he's got the gap tooth. If you look at his face, but also there's more to it. You'll notice in the middle panel, Jack Ryder's waggling a pen, mm-hmm. which was a David Letterman trademark. He'd waggle the pens and he'd throw them. He's also doing the okay symbol. That is, that's David Letterman with lots of nods to David Letterman. Okay, okay. So I'm guessing Man, that... either, I don't know, Kevin McGuire is from Indiana, or perhaps he just stayed up late at night watching David Letterman while he drew. One of the other. <laughs> yeah, it must be, because, man, it's it's soaking in David Letterman. Oh, yes, man. Yes. Oh, yeah. You'd, you'd, you'd almost think, expect Paul Schaefer to walk nearby. <laughs> and maybe that's who the bald guy hey! was. Uh, hey, there we go. <laughs> All right, so when you get to the Gray Man's old theater, yeah. this panel, this first page, just blows me away. It's, it's just a simple panel of the Gray Man standing there, but the lighting... He is standing in front of a curtain, like an old theater would have, but there's this apparently a fancy window with with bars on it or something, and the lighting is coming through there, and he is lit across with the light, with the bars, against the curtains, so the lighting is all sort of curved and shaped, and... It is an incredibly intricate drawing with that lighting pattern, and it is amazing. And I just hats off to Kevin McGuire for doing that. Wow, just a seriously impressive, uh, large, full, full. Uh, it's almost a full page image, but it's there's some panels off to the side. Such a small detail. He didn't have to put that in there, but wow, it's impressive. Oh no, and it, it it sets the mood. I mean, it makes the theater seem very creepy. That panel, and then the panels on the side. That's that's McGuire just cutting loose, doing these expressions as you know the the gray man yells, and it's all your fault. And I mean the the last panel is just he's actually very frightening looking he's yeah. just he's like a man just on the edge he's just he's over the edge i mean obviously he's and only somebody like mcguire could really give that the gravitas that it needs i mean you think if somebody else drew this the gray man would just be an old looking guy in a like a leather jacket and a gray turtleneck yeah. you know but because mcguire is this master of and it, it's a lot of its uh, giffen's layouts too but you know, he is such a master of this, these facial expressions. He totally sells this guy. I mean, he looks ancient. You yeah. Know? So you, you buy it. You buy his, his turmoil, his anger. And other people would not have pulled off that, as you said, that last panel, that shining moment, you know, from the shining is kind of what that looks like almost. And his face <laughs> yeah. is, com- you know, half of his face is completely in shadow as well. It's just ooh, creepy. That's giving me nightmares. Mm-hmm. The next page, yeah. uh, the full page splash of Dr. Fate being held captive. I like that we had to interpret that in the story because last time we saw Fate, he was was going after the gray man now he is gray man's prisoner we didn't see that capture happen but i'm glad it's a nice touch to be like you, you just make that leap of logic like oh that didn't go well for dr fate i like the way dr fate looks just that sort of frozen motion with that the thick lined outline of him very nice mm-hmm. yeah he looks like a giant superpowers action figure oh dude that's even better <laughs> It's always better when there's a giant Dr. Fate superpowers action figure because it was awesome. That's my new mantra. Uh, (laughs) I'm pretty sure rereading this issue that I subconsciously swiped the gray man's origin for the big bad comic villain I concocted for my superhero characters when I was a teenager Uh, in my late teens. I'm pretty sure I did because I had this guy who saw into creation. He was punished, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. And I know I, of course I read this and I guess this part of the gray man, maybe I had forgotten and I'm reading this. I'm like, Oh God, I totally just, I'm glad I never did anything with that because I totally plagiarized this. (laughs) Did you name your character Krona? Because it sure reads a lot like Krona to me. 
Mm, that's true. I never thought of this that. This is only two years after Crisis, where Krona's origin was told and retold and retold and retold. You know, I feel like a little echoes of Krona going on here. You know, I mean, I guess it's that's kind of an old thing. I mean, there's a lot of that going around in H.P. Um, Lovecraft stuff. You know, right. these people tapping into Cthulhu's dimension and things like that. It's not exactly a new idea. It's it's presented in a different way. And and I'm pretty sure I hadn't read the I read Crisis, but I don't know. I, this probably made more of an impact than the Krona thing then I hadn't read the original Green Lantern story but yeah good call on the Krona I hadn't thought of that you should just get used to saying good call to me this is how things roll buddy well I figured I you know I pushed my way into taking over the uh, the, the meaty part of the synopsis so I figured I'd be nice to you at this point <laughs> I was looking forward to doing the one punch too jerk <laughs> Well, you can edit me out completely. Ryan almost did on that last secret origins he did. (laughs) Believe me, when people listen to this episode, it's just going to be me talking. (laughs) So I will say, though, the secret of the Lords of Order is their serpent. (laughs) There's another inside joke for uh, Who's Who podcast fans. Yes, they're a color hole. Yes. There's like a big blob of red on the page that's supposed to be the Lords of Order, and it's it's actually really cool looking, but that was a kind of a stunning thing, and you didn't see that in regular comics that often, you know, that you turn the page and see something like that. Nowadays, it'd be, you know, Photoshop Six Ways to Sunday. Lens flares. But lens flares. <laughs> lens flares. It'd be like J.J. Abrams' wet dream right here, you know? But <laughs> Just so if you don't know, what a color holder a serpent is, is it's, an, it's a color spot on the page that has no black lines around it. They mm-hmm. use a, a sheet of vellum, which is a very thin sheet of paper. They put that over the original page. They draw the color hold piece they want there, this image they want that's going to be in a solid color with no black ink, in this case, which is just a giant red blob, and they draw it on that, and through the magic of the printing process, which as far as I'm concerned, truly was magic, uh, it ends up on a different color plate. That's how you get an image without any black lines around it. Yep. Pretty cool. It looks pretty nice. Yeah, that's a good way to go with them. I mean, they'd shown them a couple times, like, you know, they look like light, and the Lords of Order look like, I don't know, they look like a, they kind of look like poo with teeth. Right. uh... (laughs) The Lords of Chaos? Yes, they do. (laughs) Lords of Chaos, that's what I meant. Yeah, sorry, Lords of Chaos, yeah. Now, I, I got to say, since you mentioned your budding Doctor Who fandom, I don't know how much you know about classic Who, but clearly the gray man in his old days used to be a Gallifreyan. Because if you look at his clothes <laughs> with that skull cap and everything, that is a High Council of Gallifrey outfit he's wearing, my friend. That's right, yeah. Tom Baker should have had a cameo in here, too. But anyway. So I would guess that the gray man's really honked off because the Lords of Order took his porn staff. <laughs> Because the, the close-up at the bottom of page nine yeah. in the second panel, he's got quite the nice porn stash. Maybe even a Van Dyke or something because his mustache is going down around his typical Kevin McGuire open mouth. You know, not quite your O face, but – Oh, we'll get to uh, that. <laughs> yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. You know, but yeah, he's in, – and in, in now he's clean-shaven. So See, I, I thought they, it was more of like a Freddie Mercury kind of stash, but – Oh, yeah. You know, and all the gray men could do Radio Gaga. That'd be awesome. There you go. You know? There you go. <laughs> Just like the video. <laughs> Did Neil Gaiman read this issue? Uh... <laughs> Dude, it's in my notes too. How – because I had to go back. I did a little research on this because with the dream stuff, right, that he absorbs, right. yeah. I was sure there is no way that Neil Gaiman did not touch this. But he didn't. As far as I can tell, doing the online research – now, I haven't read the Sandman series in many, 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 many years. I did read it uh, religiously. I was a huge fan of it, but I just don't recall all of it. Maybe Bradley Null, who's what I would consider a bit of a Sandman expert, could tell us. I don't believe the Gray Man was ever appeared or was ever even referenced in Neil Gaiman's Sandman, which blows my mind because he went out of his way in those early issues to bring in, you know, the the Hector Hall Sandman and Lyta 
And uh, the, the friggin' JLI was in one of the issues. Yeah. Uh, so you think they would do something with the Gray Man, but I, I don't believe there any ever any was anything. I mean, the fact that he, he stole Dream Essence from the dead, I mean, that's... You know, that's too endless right, right there. Yeah. Wow. You know, as I was reading that, I'm like, why didn't this tie into that? You know? Or they could have tied it like, Dr. Destiny somehow, too. Exactly. He ended up being in Sandman. Yep. Of course, he was a Justice League character. Yep. And there's even that annual where the Dr. Destiny's in it and the – what's his name? Garrett Sanford, the, 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 the Kirby Sandman before – uh, Hector Hall took over his gig. Mm-hmm. He's in it with Dr. Destiny. Oh, wow. So, Jeez. Yeah, that's, I, re- I think I it's like Justice League. Stuff. Is that Justice League Annual Number 1? I think it's Justice League Annual Number 1, JL, JLA Annual Number 1. Now, yeah. I, I got to say, the Gray Man's idea of sucking the dream essence out of the living when he's supposed to be taken out of the dead, that's a pretty creepy kind of cool idea. I like, you know, sort of turning people into a hollow shell. And it, it's a very cool, magical story because, I mean, it's it's hard to structure a superhero tale around magic. It always is. It, it, that's mm-hmm. always a challenge. How do you make it, in, first of all, interesting? And how do you make it a challenge for the characters? And uh, I, I think that's just a, a neat hook that you can't help ignore. And um, it works well. Yeah, I do. I do too. Like you've been pointing out, this this shows that the the book wasn't all laughs, and it, it, as the league points out later, and I know we'll get to it. With all the the other versions of him that are now loose, I mean, it's something that's gonna he's gonna take over the world. It's gonna affect everybody in like fifty two hours. I mean, that's that's some serious crap. Yes, <laughs> so absolutely. That's a job for the Justice League. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. Uh, so just just FYI, yeah. the Living I looked it up. The Living Daylights was released in the U.S. on July thirty first, nineteen eighty seven. Hey. So. This issue hit the stands. It was just getting ready to come out. So, so it sounds like uh, Vermont got an early release. Good for them. Yes, there you go. Good. I hope Ryan went to go see it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe it's just me. Now we're going to get into the Justice League part. Woo-hoo! I will start out by saying maybe it's just me, but because McGuire's Batman, as we said, looked real, looked like somebody in a costume. Mm-hmm. I remember thinking that Michael Keaton's Batman looked a bit like him when the movie came out or when I first saw promo pictures of Michael Keaton in late 80, 1988, which is about a, you know, a year and a half from when this came yeah. out. Uh, so it, it may have it may have also been the lips. Look at Batman on page 13, panel three. Oh, that's yeah. Michael, that's Michael Keaton two years ago. <laughs> I can kind of see that, yeah. Obviously, he's a little bigger framed. His his head's not you know quite as small inside the cowl as Michael right. Keaton, especially in the in the first movie. But there's something very Keaton esque about about the costume, the way it's drawn, and I think part of it too is because there's so much. It looks so shiny. You know, it's like there's lots of shadows, mm-hmm. but. The, the highlights on it are it, it kind of looks like either leather or rubber right you know it, it could go either way and I, I it's 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 always kind of struck me that way and maybe that's why I accepted Michael Keaton more when I finally saw him I'm like hey you know <laughs> just Justice League Batman <laughs> yeah. since we're talking about Batman you know one of the things that this issue really points out is pretty much a lot of people are pissed off at Batman right now uh, specifically his leadership style they've kind of had enough of his crap in this issue you get Mr. Miracle Blue Beetle mm-hmm. Martian Manhunter Captain Marvel and oh yeah Guy Gardner all have a go as Batman's leadership style they all kind of give Batman some crap about it well and Canary does too I mean she dimensions that yeah we noticed oh yeah she's I mean I don't I think the only one that doesn't is Booster yeah good point good point <laughs> he hasn't been there long enough to 
<laughs> to feel like he can say anything, probably. So uh, either they're definitely setting up Batman stepping down, or they just wanted to heighten that sense of workplace conflict. I don't know which one. Yeah, yeah. And, and Mr. Miracle's talking about leaving, and maybe he read the Action Comics issues with him and Barda in advance. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, along those same lines, congratulations goes out to Guy Gardner for earning the coveted O-Face Award. Um, on page 13, panel 2, if you take a look at that page, you'll see Guy Gardner with his fists clenched, his face tight. Congratulations, Guy, on your expression of intense feeling. So, um, wait. I'm not sure what you people at home are thinking about. I'm talking about his mouth is in the shape of an O. Will you please get your heads out of the gutter, folks? Just as Chris is talking about porn, doesn't mean I am. <laughs> but for some reason, guy looks like Popeye in that panel. I don't know why. There's just something there's something Popeye-esque about him. And I love that Beetle just throws throws the most powerful weapon in the universe over his shoulder and doesn't care where it lands. Well, it's it's such a tiny little moment. It's it's in a, you know in a panel, not even referenced, and he's just over his shoulder, and that becomes a huge plot point next issue. Yes, it does. Yeah. And it leads to a huge plot point for many, many, many issues down the line. Well, it, it's funny. So many people, because, you know, I mean, I don't, we're not spoiling anything here, folks, I don't think. I mean, you all know the one punch not only is hysterical, but it changes – this setup is going to change Guy Gardner's personality for about a year, I think, or so. Mm-hmm. A lot of people forget it's not the punch that did it. No. It's the search no. for the ring that did it. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I don't want I don't want to steal the, the your next guest thunder. Yeah, by yeah back off, buddy. You've got the one punch. So, all right. You just you just hold your horses right there, Mr. Greedy Pants. Okay, okay, I'll shut up. The bit with Beatles always uh, always got me. And I love that Captain Marvel storms off, you know, in a huff mm-hmm. and he's muttering under his breath literally there's just like unintelligible tiny little letters inside a bubble as he's a speech balloon as he's, you know, walking away all, you know, with his bottom lip sticking out yep. like just like a little kid would, so <laughs> which makes sense, right? But it works. Now uh, yep. there are some panels here that clearly Professor Alan Middleton's going to have an issue with. Professor Alan Middleton has an issue with backgrounds that aren't fully developed. He doesn't like comics where they've got two characters talking and the background is just a solid color that doesn't really exist in the room. Like here, you've got panels mm. where guys taking off his ring and the panel in the, in the background behind him is yellow. Then you've got a panel of Captain Marvel and Batman talking and the background's orange, solid orange. You know, the next page yeah. or two, you get similar scenes where it's red or orange or yellow. And that's done to help set off the costumes and make it, you know, eye-catching without distracting. But Professor Quarterbin, he's got a real issue with this. So, Alan, you better suck it up, pal, because this is a great comic. Yeah, I I don't have any problem. I understand. I mean, there's some comic artists that just, they they don't want to draw anything but the characters. And I understand that because the few comics I've drawn, I didn't want to draw anything but the characters. Uh, But... But I think McGuire does a really good job in the other panels of really detailing the the Justice League headquarters. In fact, I was going to bring that up later, but I'll go ahead and bring it up now. I mean, the floor, you get more of the floor in the next few pages, but the coloring and the way way McGuire draws it and the way Gene D'Angelo colors it, I mean, you get the pattern of the floor. I mean, like the alternating tiles and... I mean, this looks like a room. It looks like an actual, they're in an actual room with lots of computer banks and fancy equipment and, and they, and McGuire sells it. So I forgive him for the dramatic license of, of not showing that background in every panel just to give the said panel a little more oomph. So it works for me. And I will say, I'm, I'm reading this for this review. I'm doing the, the original. A hard copy issue. I don't know. Are you, are you doing that as well? Are you doing a trade? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I've got my original issue number five bought off the stands when it came All right. Out. There we go. So I've got my number five here. I didn't 
reference it for this episode, but I, I own the trade, and I have the digital trade as well. And I know I harp on this every month, guys. I don't care. I'm going to keep doing it. Seriously, buy the digital trades on Comixology and read this thing in panel view or grid view or whatever, they, or guided views, whatever they call it. It is gorgeous because you get one panel at a time, and you really get a chance to focus on Kevin McGuire's artwork, guys. He draws so much detail that you glaze over when you look at a whole page at one time. You can't help it. You get distracted. When you look at it panel by panel, it's a beautiful thing. That's a good idea. I'm going to I'm gonna have to try it that out. It is absolutely worth it. And from time to time, they'll have a sale. Like when I bought mine, they were 50% off. Ooh, yeah. nice. You just got to watch it. Get on the Comixology newsletter uh, and watch for the sales. Cool. Well, we got to talk about the actual one-punch panel. One panel. The panel that knocked the world. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, you get Guy. His, he's he's falling backward. His his bowl cut is lurching forward as he falls backward. His nose is exploding. Yep. Batman's fist is not shown actually touching his face, which I think is great. I mean, Batman's fist is actually at the end of the giant bonk, mm-hmm. which I think it's hilarious that it's just bonk. <laughs> I mean, it just shows that Batman hit him, and there's all these... You know, Carmine Infantino flash-like, you know, after images of, of, of Batman's fist with speed lines. Yep. And the coloring's really well done that it, you know, kind of fades away to nothingness. But it's like you get that instant snap of, like, Batman just threw his arm out, it fully extended, punched him right in the face and drew it back. And guys just, like, he bounced off it before he even knew he hit it. Yeah. Of course, you got the, the you know, the explosion lines in the back to show the ra- the radiant lines to show that this, this is a, an incredible amount of action. You got a few motion lines off Guy's head, and he still got his left his left hand and a fist. Which I guess, even though Guy wears his power ring, he was going to punch Batman left-handed. Yep. He wears his power ring on his right hand. Hmm, interesting. But <laughs> no one's a guy. Yeah, maybe it's no a guy was bright. <laughs> Maybe that's where he screwed up. He might have done a fared a little bit better, probably not. But yeah, it's just a gorgeous panel. I mean, it, we're, we're dissecting it to death, but it deserves it because it's a historic comic book panel. That's right. It's something that people talk about to this day. And I liked your description of Batman's fist jackhammering because that's really what it is. It's just a, a quick in and out motion. It looks almost like not quite whiplash. Because it almost looks like his whole body went rigid and just took the punch, mm-hmm. and it not only is he falling backwards, but it's like it's sh- it shoved him. It's moving. You know, he's going backwards because of the force of the blow, and uh, mm-hmm. it's it's really well rendered. Yeah, and in, in the next panel, his feet are like like touching yeah. one another. <laughs> his big giant whatever the hell those are boots are. He's got moon boots touching. on. Moon boots. It's moon boots. Yeah, there you they go. have straps and belts on them. <laughs> yes, I yes. love his costume. <laughs> His costume, you know, I mean, it is – it should be ridiculous, but it's so distinctive that it, it just works. I mean, there's a reason why when they finally got him back to being a Green Lantern, they didn't change it a whole lot. You know, I mean, they – at first, anyway, I, I didn't keep up with it much beyond the first uh, – you know, after Rebirth and the Green Lantern mm-hmm. core book and stuff. It was pretty much the same look they gave him. They kind of got rid of the bowl yeah, cut, and he just had like – Changed a, his hair. You know, <laughs> the high and tight a little bit still. It, it works for that character. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah, I love Beatles got his head completely thrown back when he's going one punch one punch <laughs> uh, you know speaking of beetle again you've got mcguire shows beetle he's you know he's he's, he's laughing so hard he's crying yep. he's rubbing his eye he's got his fingers up underneath his goggle and he's rubbing his eye now how many artists would think to do that right and i've actually seen uh, listened to an interview with kevin mcguire where he talks about that he heard from a lot of different artists over the years that that panel influenced them quite a bit because that panel you know as we've been talking about these are people wearing clothes that really hit home 
the fact that, you know, that's not Beetle's head. He's wearing a cowl. And yes, he, he's got tears. He's got a wipe and he's going to reach underneath there. And that sort of changed the way a lot of people thought about superhero costumes. It's, it's a great panel and it, you can't help but sort of make that connection where he's, you, it's funny the whole thing has happened, but it's even funnier when you see Beetle wiping the tears away. Uh, it's so good. Well, you know, if you had goggles like that on and were crying, they just like fill up. It'd be like a bowl of water. <laughs> <laughs> So you'd have to, you know, get in there and like, you know, get it out. It's like going swimming. It's going swimming when it all goes wrong. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And 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 Canary with her, like you said, with her hands, like she's looking at her so hands. So horrified. Oh my, I love that moment. Now yeah. I want to talk about Batman. I mentioned this last episode, but I'm going to bring it up again. Uh, this is on page 15. If you look at Batman, the second panel, the Bat logo mm-hmm. on the bottom of the Bat logo, there are too many points. Yes. And we've seen this now a few times from Kevin McGuire, and that's fine. But I just think it's interesting to note that two years from now, with the Batman movie 1989, everyone would be style guide accurate from then on. Yes. I mean, yeah. that, that kind of mistake was not going to fly after that point. It used to drive me nuts, but occasionally in the Batman letter pages of a little bit after this era, right before the 89 movie, they would they'd occasionally run the Batman logo at the bottom of the letters page if they didn't have... Uh, that you know they ran out of uh, content sure. to put there just to fill in space. They'd occasionally show one that it was the same and had the same number of of little scallops, but it was not the iconic Batman logo like you see with the movie. And it was like the bat was fatter looking, and it it really bothered hey. me. And I, I don't think that even though it was around, it was in the style guides. It's on all the Jose Luis Garcia Lopez his name style guide artwork. It still wasn't, like you said, it wasn't, wasn't 100% adopted till that 89 Batman movie. And as you pointed out last episode, the movie actually got it wrong. Yeah, they did. So. Slightly. Slightly. Not, not majorly, but slightly wrong. Yes. They yeah. fixed it, the, uh, it. And all the promo material was right. It was just on screen that it had it wrong. Right, yeah. I, I do like that in the brief meeting scene, we, we do get a little bit more of the Max Lord subplot. Max isn't in this issue, but you know they took yeah. that little moment that they had – with the meeting to to address that this is still going on. Don't forget the Max Lord thing. It's still going on. And, you know, and as you pointed out, Batman again treats Booster as a competent team oh member. Gosh. Boy, I can't wait to, you know, in this reread as we dissect it, to get to the first time where Booster just makes an ass of himself and Batman has had enough of his crap. I'm looking forward to finding that for the first time and see when it actually starts. Now, I, yeah. I, until you mentioned it, I completely didn't even notice that Max wasn't in this issue. Because it's just, because, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who typically when I read a comic, I just kind of go along for the ride. I'm like, oh, this is happening and this is happening. This is happening. And later on, someone comes back and says, what? You didn't notice this, 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 and this? And I'm like, oh, oh, oh okay. So that's one of those moments. <laughs> didn't even notice Max wasn't here. It was a neat way to address the ongoing storyline and, and also, you know, kind of show that the league really does have a lot of trust and faith in Booster. And I don't think, Giffen and Demetrius knew what to do with him quite yet. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, uh, Demetrius basically. Uh, I asked him recently uh, on Twitter about you know his experience with Booster leading up to this because I was wondering about Skeets, and he basically said he he didn't really know who Booster was going into this, so he didn't even know there was a Skeets. And Booster, I think last issue had the crew cut, and this issue he's got his parted hair. So okay. I don't know why, but uh, who knows? I don't know. Maybe. They seemed like they kept changing that in Booster's comic, so yeah. I, I don't. Well, I mean, you know, I guess, it's a month between issues. You got a haircut. Sometimes it's longer. Sometimes it's shorter. I prefer I yeah, prefer Booster I, with the floopy hair, as I call it, me floppy too. hair, whatever yeah, you want to say. 
So that mouth on the monitor, that bit is so Keith. Oh, Gibson. yes, it uh, is. Yes, it totally is. His, his layouts are most definitely showing there. <laughs> <laughs> no denying that. Not going to argue that one with you whatsoever. You, you pointed out that the, the 52 hours to save the world bit, we've done it before. Uh, that that I love that because that speaks to the legacy of the Justice League. But it also points to the greenness of much of this team, and it's personified by Booster. So you have the the little interchange between the the original founding members on the team, which well, actually Black Canary will soon be known as a founding That's member. True. Not not quite yet, not quite yet. But you've got Batman and John as the founding members of the team, and oh, we've done this before. And Booster's just gobsmacked that you have. You know that's that's great. Little, I mean, that's the whole the dynamic of the team in a nutshell, really. So it, I like that. I like that. But then at the same time, I look back and go, fifty-two hours. That's like two days. Some Justice League stories take place in the matter of hours, from you know finding <laughs> out about the crisis to saving the day. I mean, it just you know, it's like a few minutes. True that. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, Captain Marvel, he gets a bit sassy with Batman, but, you know. Who does he? But, you know, he's a teenager, so it was bound to happen, as you and I both know. Oh. Teenagers. <laughs> now, I, I know I lament this every month, and I've only got an issue or two more to lament it, but I get sadder and sadder about the as each issue as about the upcoming departure of both Captain Marvel and Doctor Fate. Such potential in both characters on this team, and it just bums me out. Now, clearly, they're sending tons of signals here that Captain Marvel's probably going to leave the team. Uh, it also looked yeah. like they're sending signals about Mr. Mar- Miracle leaving the team as well, but I wonder if they were just leading to what happens next issue with Captain Marvel, because there's a big thing that happens with Captain Marvel next issue, and I don't know if that was yep. the foreshadowing they were going for, or whether they were legitimately getting ready for him to leave the team. Because as I understand it, they didn't know Captain Marvel was only, quote-unquote, on loan to them. They thought they had Captain Marvel for the run of the series, and then were informed later on, like, oh, no, no, you can only use him for a while, and the character was yanked from him. So I don't know what point he was yanked, and if this was just angst for the plot, or was angst leading to his departure. You know, and it's it's really frustrating because I really like the angle they were, were coming at with him. That, like you said, that one page where you get his inner monologue, that goes a long way to showing what they might have done with him. And it's a shame because they didn't get to use him, and then Roy Thomas didn't really get to use him beyond the miniseries and like what one Action Comics Weekly arc or something. Right. Because I think I read it, it was like Alter Ego number 100, where Roy Thomas goes over his, his time at DC, and basically it amounted to. You know, he was told we're going to do an ongoing series. We're trying to get you an artist because apparently Tom Mandrake, he didn't want to continue or he had another assignment or he wanted to do for whatever reason. So he wasn't going to continue after the New Beginning miniseries. So they were trying to get him an artist and it just it, it kept falling through. And basically Roy Thomas's option, this sounds weird, sounds like a Hollywood thing, but his option on the character lapsed. I see what you mean, yeah. So then he, Captain Marvel, got put off. I think John Byrne got it at some point and then he didn't do anything with it. And then finally Jerry Ordway did something with him. So, I mean, years later. And it's just a shame that nobody got to use him, and he was so good here. You know, it's like, just leave him alone and leave him here. You know, it's like, share, people. You can share. It it would have been an entirely different take on the series if he'd managed to stay around to watch him grow from being the kid who doesn't fit in to being a core member of the team. And it would have been really fun to see. Now, I will say the flip side of that is... I'm kind of glad he got left on the shelf for a while, and we got that amazing Jerry Ordway Power Shazam series, though, out of it. I mean, that's, Mm. as far as I'm concerned, like, that's the best take on Captain Marvel for me. I love that take. Oh, yeah, me too, especially the original graphic novel. Oh, so good. So good. Yeah, great, fantastic. 
Uh, you mentioned that Batman's uh, I'm hard on everyone and Canary's like, good point. I, yep. <laughs> that's, that's, that plays into, you know, what we're going to discuss later when we, we talk about Batman. But I like when they land in Stone Ridge, uh, how Maguire shows Jean floating in front of the team. You only see his head and his cape. No, that's wild. It's, I, I don't know if anybody ever done that with him before, but it reminds me of how they treated him on the JLU cartoon, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. That version of Jean, he was very, you know, he kept his cloak around him almost all the time, and he was always, like, phasing through walls and things. You know, he had that a little bit of that creepy vibe about him, but a good creepy, not a bad creepy. It was, it was un- you know. unearthly. Unearthly. Yeah. There you go. Creepy's got too many bad connotations. Right. But I like that here, and that's that's probably the first time I saw him portrayed that way, and I liked it. And it seems like that's probably a Kevin McGuire thing, too, because there's there's nothing in the story indicating that Martian Manhunter's turning invisible you know, at any point in the story. They don't talk about it. So that I just right. got to think that was a Kevin McGuire nod. You know, I, I love the transition here, where it's like he's, yep. he's in the process of, of doing it. So yes. you just don't hit your yep. head with it, which is nice. So we meet the Creeper, uh, and... <laughs> Even <laughs> even in the post-crisis DCU, some of those old Brave and the Bold issues had to have happened, or how would Batman know who the creature is? <laughs> so some zany Haney Woo-hoo! was still going on. <laughs> love you, Bob Haney. I love you. Or some Alan Brennert, because he wrote that great early 80s Batman Creeper story. Oh. And that's, you know, that's mine and Rob's favorite, Alan Brenner. Mm-hmm. And that storyline, that story may have happened. Uh, either way, it was it was great. And man, McGuire's Creeper is, well, he's freaking creepy. Because on <laughs> page 21, panel 3, he has no pupils. Yep. And he is creepier than hell. I mean, <laughs> When you see the Bronze Age Joker, whose face is so elongated, like the Jim Aparo version, it's so elongated, it's just not realistic, and he's got that ridiculous smile. This is like that same smile, but on a more proportioned face. Yes. You're right. Creepy is a good word for it. He's just very, very disturbing. And Creeper's one of those guys, I think he's got a very cool visual. I think if you try to think about how that, what that visual really is, it falls apart the minute you start thinking he's got some giant feather boa thing, yes. you know, on him. And it's, he's, he's like, he's, his skin's yellow and he's running around in green striped shorts with gloves with like tassels hanging off of them or like they're torn or something. And it, it's redunculous. It, it's, it's a redunculous look. It's Steve Ditko at his, his zaniest. And hey, I never thought about this. Is this the first time the Creeper and Blue Beetle met? They're both Steve Ditko characters. Oh, very good point. Well, unless it happened in Crisis, then right. yeah. And I don't think Creeper would have appeared in the Blue Beetle series. So, well, I guess he might have. But yeah, that could very well be. Yeah, I, it just it just hit me all of a sudden. But it's weird to see the Creeper drawn realistically because his outfit is like the epitome of ridiculousness. But McGuire somehow makes it work. Well, the more you try to put the Creeper's costume in like a real-world perspective, the more it leads you, uh, unfortunately, to the Superpowers action figure designs where <laughs> the boa becomes suction cups, and you just don't want to go down that road. And nothing good comes of that. Yeah, that would have been a really weird action figure. I mean, I think that's. I think they were starting to lose the idea that, hey, the action fi- feature is supposed to be hidden, guys. You know, it's supposed to be hidden in the figure. You're not supposed to have big, giant, freaking suction cup. Ten- it's like Dr. Octopus all of a sudden or something. Uh, you know? <laughs> if you don't know, folks, that's an unproduced uh, creeper figure for the Superpowers line that, that had been proposed. They had done up some sketches for it, and it looked abysmal. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. 
Now, I love on the same page. It's the bottom panel. So I don't know. Is that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight? I may have to take off my shoes to keep counting. But eighth panel, it's the last panel on that last of the page, second to last page, where you get the whole, almost the whole Justice League crammed into one little tiny panel. It's just an amazing feat by Kevin McGuire here to fit in Batman, Booster Gold, you know, Black Canary, Martian Manhunter, Blue Beetle, and Mar- uh, Mr. Miracle all in this little tiny panel. And yet they're all fairly large and they all have the look of shock and awe. I mean, Black Canaries even got her mouth, her hand up to her mouth and like a <gasps> kind of look as they look on to Stone Ridge, Vermont. And uh, I just love that panel. Yeah, I mean, Mike Sikowski couldn't cram that many Justice Leaguers into a panel that small and make it look that good. You know, <laughs> well, he couldn't make it look that good, but he couldn't make it work. Right, you know? right, so, yeah. No, not ragging on Mike Sikowski, but never a huge fan of his style. But he knew how to cram multiple characters into tiny panels. Yeah. And I don't think he could have done this any better. So so yeah. what do you think of that last page? Wow. I mean, that is one jacked up looking town. The, the only the only thing I will say, and, and this is this is this is my only minor nit about this. And I didn't even put it in my notes, but. Uh, the town looks a little too close to the Justice Leaguers. There's not, there's, the depth between the two isn't quite as, uh, I don't know, it's just not quite as developed as maybe it, it, it could, should have been to sell that the whole town, this almost looks like they're, they're kind of looking at like an amusement park, like a maze or something that they're going to go through mm. rather than, than this is the buildings that have been changed into, into these freaky things. I love the design of the buildings and stuff, but it might be a coloring thing. Maybe if, if you, maybe if you'd seen more of the like rock they're standing on or mountain or whatever it is, the, the, the ledge, if that had, you'd seen a little more of that, it might have given you more of that depth. That's, that's the only thing. But yeah, I love the creepy buildings and, you know, the creepers, ha 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 ha. Going all up in up into the the top of the page and yeah it's it's frightening but it's it looks great yet like you said it's it's like if you know H.R. Giger like redesigned Disney World or something you know in Technicolor yeah <laughs> in Technicolor yeah and, and I, th- I love the sort of still pristine Vermont hills rolling hills in the background which mm-hmm. sort of offset the you know, here's the beautiful nature and here's the twisted nature it just kind of fits nicely I I'm not the world's biggest fan of this last page. And I think it's just because I don't typically enjoy stories where just weird, and, and I'm totally talking off the guff here. I'm not even making sense probably what I'm saying, but weird magical crap happens like this where stuff just transforms and looks creepy and weird misshapen monster stuff doesn't always grab me in a standard superhero fair book. So this wasn't my favorite cliffhanger, but it's effective at least. You know, it does its job. It makes you go, oh, what's happened? And you know that, you know, our hero, Captain Marvel's down there well, we get a letters page, mm-hmm. which is great. It's, it's still not called uh, Justice Log yet. In fact, they do mention that the next issue they're going to announce the winner of the letters page column header. So very cool. But just uh, lots of lots of love being praised by folks for writing into the book. And clearly, DC knew at this point they had a huge hit on their hands. Yeah, you know, it's kind of I'm almost surprised that, and of course, they did Justice League Europe, but. I'm almost surprised in hindsight that they didn't try to do other team books like Justice League because they did that with, you know, once New Teen Titans was big, do the Outsiders, do Infinity, make the Justice League like the Teen Titans. And, of course, the Titans were a lot like the X-Men, the New Teen Titans. But, I mean, you know, they changed every team or created teams to match the New Teen Titans. But they didn't do that with when Justice League was a big hit. Hmm. So it's kind of odd that they didn't. <laughs> you make a I good point. I thought that before. It just kind of popped in my head. <laughs> well, I mean, they did build a franchise out of it between Justice League uh, America, eventually, Justice League Europe, 
the Mr. Miracle ongoing, the Dr. Fate ongoing. I mean, they built a bit of an empire out of the comedic angle with superhero heroics. Well, that's true. And even some of it spilled over into, you know, the green when the Green Lantern book relaunched, you had when Guy was the main character of the series when they rotated between Hal, Guy, and John. You had the guy issues were, you know, they had Nord them. They yeah. were humorous. And, <laughs> yeah. So it was it was almost a satellite book. Speaking of Nort, I have to bring up that the Batman guy one punch scenario was recreated in animation. Ah. In Batman, the Brave and the Bold is episode The Eyes of Despero, and it was written by J.M. DeMatteis. Yeah, I think I heard of that guy. And Nort. Yeah, I've heard of that guy before, too. Nort is the one who says one punch over and over and uh, of course batman you know punches batman punches guy batman's actually in a, a green lantern outfit that they make for him so he can go into space the, you know batman punches guy out and uh, it's got nort and it, not only that but the teaser has dr fate and wotan oh. so there's a lot of jli going on in that episode i know i've seen yeah. that episode before but it's probably been since shortly after it aired so i need to go back and rewatch that so good so good just for you shag i watched that episode last night because i was telling Cindy, i was like I know they did that on Brave and the Bold, but what episode was it? And I, I like, I was thinking it was probably the toward the end because I'll, I'll bring this up too. I have read with uh, producer James Tucker, who was the showrunner on Brave and the Bold, that their plan was to move Batman the Brave and the Bold to a JLI show. Mm. And that's why the last season, there is so much emphasis on the Justice League International. I mean, you pretty much have the classic team. They replaced Jaime for Ted, and you have Aquaman, you know, thrown in there because he's one of the main guest stars on Batman the Brave and the Bold. And because he's so humorous on there, it works. But you've got Martian Manor, you got Guy, you got Fire and Ice, you got Booster. They they get to keep Captain Marvel. Uh, <laughs> so it's pretty much the classic JLI team on there. And I, you know, they they, they just didn't get picked up beyond their initial order, which sucks because I really wanted to see that version of the Justice League in animation because we'd already seen the the satellite era plus an army on you know Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, which right. of course I love. But to see the JLI would have been really cool. That would have been incredible. Oh wow. Yeah. Ah. One more thing about this issue. I don't know. You've got you've got your you've got your copy in hand. Yeah. The back cover. The back cover has a Chips Ahoy ad that asks you to cut up the back cover and make a flip book out of it. <laughs> oh, is that what used to be here? I can't tell. Mine's all been cut up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it when comics do that because that, that points to a time when the comics were disposable and they were meant for kids mostly, you know. Right. I mean, they're obviously advertising that for kids. I kind of like to see that. It's like when kids used to cut out the, in the 70s, you find all those Marvel books with the stamp cut out the of it, stamps. right? Exactly. It's like, oh, crap. Yeah, the, the Marvel value stamps or whatever they were called. Take it to your grocery store and get your mom a set of blue plates or something. You know? I don't <laughs> oh, oh, my gosh. Oh, anyone who's under 30 <laughs> listening to this podcast has no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. But luckily, there's a lot of old farts like us that listen to it. So <laughs> I imagine most people listening to this show fall into the old fart category, except for Chad Bogleman. So. All right. Well, let's move on to yep. the house ads. I'm, I'm only going to talk about one of the house ads in this issue because all the other ones, if I recall, either – I think the ones in here we've already talked about in previous episodes or there weren't any more. I can't remember. Either way – the one we're I don't talk- think there, I think that's the only one. Oh, there is the only one. That's right. Okay. Uh, it's worth talking about though. It is a Doom Patrol house ad. So this is advertising the Paul Kupperberg, Steve Lytle first issue. This is 
says, the original Hardlock Heroes are back from the grave. And it's got a shot of the full cover, uh, front and back page cover for issue number one. It says, or are they? Doom Patrol by Paul Kupperberg, Steve Lytle, and Gary Martin. New series coming in July. It's a really, really nice ad. Oh, yeah. I love Steve Lytle, so I still do. I love his stuff. Yes. And uh, I think he's, you know, unfortunately, because, you know, he will tell you, in interviews and stuff, he's, he just has a hard time doing a monthly book. Mm. It's it's a shame that he's not more of a, a fan favorite household name because I mean I think he's I think he's just top notch. He's and, the bee's uh, knees. I remember when the ser- he is he's the shiznit. Uh, <laughs> I think I remember when the series came out. I was like really excited for it, and I think I bought the first few issues, and I, I, it was just I don't know there was just something that wasn't quite clicking and i'm not like a huge doom patrol fan sorry waiting for doom guys i like your show though uh <laughs> but uh i'm not like a gi- ginormous fan of of the doom patrol but i like them and i like to see them in other things so i really wanted to get behind this and you know i, I when they showed up in the titans with the whole hunt for the the killers of the doom patrol i really like that storyline yeah it was just it just, just didn't quite gel and then you know lyle left like not too long into it and total change you had eric larson like i mentioned earlier like a there's a total change in tone from Steve yeah. Lytle to Eric Larson. Oh, yeah. Wow. And the focus became on the kids, you know, the B team at that point. And I, I've never read the series myself, but I, having done the Who's Who podcast, I, I read a lot of feedback because we covered a lot of the, the Doom Patrol issue, or characters in Who's Who. So I've read a lot of the feedback from folks who did read the Doom Patrol series. And, and it's sort of similar to what you just said, is that it started off gorgeous looking, kind of hard to connect with. And then once Eric Larson came on the book, it was just kind of like, oh, not so much anymore. Right. And then, of course, Grant Morrison came in and blew everything up. Man, (laughs) I, you know, for me, and we're way off the reservation here, but I got into Doom Patrol on issue 26. So that's five, seven issues into Grant Morrison's run. But, you know, I got in with uh, Mr. Mr. Nobody and the Brotherhood of Dada and, you know, just wow. Oh, my gosh. Those are so good. So good. Yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff. Well, we need to move on, folks. It's time for our next segment. Character Spotlight. This is where we ask the guests to share some thoughts on one of the characters from the issue. And it's not, we're not looking really for an origin recap, but more where these characters were in the DC Universe just before joining the JLI and what kind of impact the JLI had on their lives or careers, either during or afterwards. Normally, I ask the guests to keep it to like a normal like three or five minute segment. Based on the notes Chris has put forward here, this is going to be about 20 minutes. So uh, everyone just you know, get comfortable, get yourself a cup of tea or something. David Gutierrez, you can drive to the grocery store if you'd like. Chris, could you tell us a little bit about the Batman? This is not a character spotlight. This is a character bat signal. Oh, goodness. <laughs> that was cheesy. Oh, about. goodness. God, that was cheesy. So <laughs> Batman, needless to say, was at one of the most pivotal uh, points in his long publishing history around this time. If you go back and look at like the comic buyer's guide, uh, reader award polls, Batman often won favorite character, like in the mid eighties, but the, his sales before crisis weren't the best. Doug mentioned he'd been doing uh, ongoing, very soap operatic storylines running across Batman and detective. It was essentially like one book. Len Wein was the editor and then they did Batman 400 and that closed down the earth one pre-crisis Batman and then uh, legendary Batman writer Denny O'Neill became editor of the two Bat books, Batman and Detective. And, of course, this was in the wake of Frank Miller's Dark Knight series, the magnum opus that it was. And now you had a very revolutionary, gritty take on Batman that was quite different than what was seen in his monthly books at the time. And then you had the promise of Crisis with its 
you know, blank slate to start over so they could do whatever they wanted to do with Batman. And O'Neill, he seemed, and he has said this in interviews, he struggled with the direction to go with that character at first. He had a very retro-style Batman in the excellent Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis run a detective. It was essentially the modern Batman and Robin in very classic Bill Finger, Dick Sprang type stories. And God, I love that run. That's an awesome run. Uh, but it's collected and, not too long ago, I think, know, right? I, I know, yes, yeah. yes. And over in Batman around the same time, you had Miller come back with David Mazzuccelli and do the very gritty, very urban, down-to-earth take of Batman in Batman Year One. <sighs> love that. And he followed that... Oh, God. Batman Year One is actually... I, I love Batman Year One. The Batman The Dark Returns, I have respect for for what it is. I enjoy it. But ba I, even as a kid, I preferred Batman Year One. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, as a teen. I, I've always felt that was the superior Batman project that Miller did for me. Uh, and then Denny O'Neill followed that up by hiring Max Allen Collins, who I just do not like his Batman run, as I mentioned <laughs> earlier. Batman was most definitely in the state of flux when, you know, they formed the Justice League and he was the leader. I think Mike W. Barr was probably the first writer who really showed that Batman probably wouldn't be the easiest person to get along with in a team dynamic in his Outsiders book. He often treated the team of Outsiders like they were an army of superpowered Robins. Oh. Uh, so Batman would just order them around and they'd get kind of grumpy with him and and he and Marv Wolfman and Jerry Conway, who had wrote Batman and Detective before Minch, they had started to display that the truly obsessed Batman that we now know today, although he wasn't didn't go to the extremes that he would go to later. But Barr had a way of balancing the super hard ass Batman with a side of the character that could still call Robin his old chum like Adam West. And he made it work. <laughs> So I feel like the JLI Batman actually lines up pretty well with that take. I mean, he's a hard ass, no doubt, but he's not incapable of cracking a joke like he did with Beetle with the Star Trek thing a few issues back. Right. And playing along with him to a point. But he's, you know, he's also not above asserting his alpha, alpha maleness by clocking guy, you know. So uh, I'm not sure why, I, you know, I've heard Denny O'Neill didn't like the take of the 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 Justice League take on Batman. I'm not really sure why he had such a problem with it because since he didn't have a concrete take on him, essentially like there were three different, well, two different Batman characters in the Batman books than the Justice League Batman because, you know, you, after Collins left, you got Jim Starlin on the book and Batman and his, surprisingly for Cosmic Jim Starlin, his his stories were very urban, very street, very gritty and then you had the the kind of the the crazy semi mystical psychological horror stories going on and with uh, John Wagner and Alan Grant and detective drawn by Norm Brayfogle. Oh. oh, awesome! Oh my gosh. God, that's awesome. That is what that is my that's awesome. That is my Batman face. Wagner, uh, yeah, Wagner, I mean, Grant, Brayfogle. That's my Batman face. Oh, uh, that was man. He was like a he was a breath of fresh air. And I mean, and and I you know, and Batman at the time you had Jim Aparo and. Now, I know some people say, well, Jim Aparo, he was toward the end of his career. He wasn't – his work wasn't quite what it used to be. But I will tell you, if any – don't listen to people that tell you that. It's a lot to do with the inkers that DC gave him. They gave him Mike DiCarlo, who I'm not a fan of. He made everybody look like they were chiseled out of rock. Uh, <laughs> and Jim Aparo drew uh, not too long after this. I think it was 1990. I think it's Legends of the Dark Knight Annual Number 1. 
there's a story that Denny O'Neill wrote that has different chapters drawn by different artists. Jim Apiro pencils, inks, and letters, just like he used to, uh, uh, the beginning and end of that story, and that is classic-looking, brave and the bold Jim Apiro Batman, and he did it in 1990. Okay. Take my word for it. It's awesome. You, you uh, just told me not uh, to listen to myself about Batman, because I am one of those people <laughs> that struggle with the Aparo Batman stories, like, you know, Death in the Family. I have a hard time reading it because of the part. Now, maybe it's not a part. Maybe it's the anchor. But I will say I have a hard time reading it because of the art. Then you get the Nightfall. Right. And you've got, you know, when, when you've got a multi-part story that crosses books and you've got one issue that's Brayfogel uh, on Batman and then another issue leads into, you know, uh, uh, that, that era Aparo of Batman where, you know, the Bane breaking Batman's back was done by that art team. Ouch. You know, just didn't resonate for yeah. me. So yeah, so you, I'm one of those yeah. folks. Sorry. No, no, and I and and I do think toward the end when he actually did it, like officially retire, like right at nightfall, I do think he was slipping a bit. You know, I I, I do, and but I, I do think he had some some really he had some good solid years in there too. I just think a lot of it was masked over because DC just I don't know maybe they felt like he wasn't up to as snuff as he was, and they gave him you know kind of powerful anchors, kind of what they did to Carmine Infantino, but. Carmine really needed it, I think, uh, <laughs> for the end. But, but anyway, we're, we're, we're way off topic. Well, I'm sorry. I do want to uh, say, I do love Jim Aparo. Not, His, Jim Aparo in the 70s is probably the mo- some of the most amazing DC artwork out there. I adore his stuff. His stuff on Batman and the Outsiders is so on model throughout the whole series. It's fun. It's dynamic. It's wacky. I love it. I, I just have a nitpick with that certain era in the 80s. So forgive me. Anyone who loves Jim Aparo, understand that it comes from a place of love. And it's just a particular era I have a problem with. So Rob Kelly, yeah, send your I, I hate agree. mail somewhere else. I, I can see where you're coming from. I, I should have said I agree. I don't. I don't agree, but I see where you're coming from. Quit being uh, so damn will, nice, Franklin. I, I know it. I know it. I think by the '90s, like you said, when you're getting into Nightfall and things, you've got Chuck Dixon, Doug Minch, and uh, Alan Grant. At by that point, without John Wagner. Those three guys under O'Neill, they had a pretty consistent idea of what Batman was. But it wasn't until those guys were on those books that you really had a, you know, a a character that that you could follow him from title to title, and it seemed like it was the same character. So I don't, I really don't understand the issue with the the Justice League Batman, but whatever. I think Batman was very important to this title at first because he was the direct link to the classic JLA. You know, sure you had you had Black Canary and Martian Manhunter had been in the the league, and obviously uh, Jean was a founder and Canary was in it for a long time. But she never had her own title, and Jean had been off the series for nearly two decades before he came back, right before Justice League Detroit. Uh, so Batman was the only true DC big gun. On the title, if he had been left out, it would have thrown the entire dynamic off, I think. Yeah. Uh, that, but that's me. I think they showed that with the New 52 version, because when the New 52 launched, they had the, the was it, Jeff Johns, Jim Lee, Justice League team, but they also launched the Dan Jurgens. Oh, who was the artist? Was that Aaron Lepresti? No. Maybe it was. I don't know. Either way, I don't recall at this, at this incredibly late hour, folks. But there was a Justice League International book that launched right out of New 52 as well, and they put Batman on the team. And Mm. I I think it was sort of a connection. It's the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, Batman is the link with Justice League International to the regular Justice League team. 
Hmm, that makes sense. Yeah. I, I didn't. I guess I didn't keep up with that one. I, I can't keep up with all the the offshoot Justice League books they did in the New Fifty Two. Yeah, <laughs> just that's like they did Dark. They did you know the you know Milk Chocolate. They did I don't know what. <laughs> you know. Yep, they they absolutely Justice League did Milk that. Chocolate. They, uh, that's one of my favorites. Yeah. I like that one quite a bit. Uh, I, unfortunately, due to the very fiefdom like state of DC at the time, there was little to no. Justice League influence in the Batman titles because, like we said, Danny O'Neill had a problem with it. And you would, but you would have thought you brought up Death in the Family that Batman's membership may have come up in that storyline because you get into all that bit with the Joker and diplomatic immunity and all that stuff mm-hmm. and international incident. Superman's like, you can't cause an international incident. And, you know, they just left all that out. Batman was a member of the Justice League International. They think that would have came up, but it didn't. So it's, that's a shame, but I guess it probably would have complicated kind of a bonds, a gonzo story <laughs> storyline anyway. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you covering Batman. I think you gave a really good summation of where Batman was and how the JLI interworked with that. So thank you very much, Chris. You've actually been successful in at least something tonight. So I, I really, really appreciate that. All right, folks. I feel validated in my existence because you gave me approval. So thank you. Don't worry. It's it's just a, uh, ephemeral. It's only going to last a moment. So, uh, Okay. All right, folks. Now it's time for the infamous Plahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment of the issue. Both myself and the guest are going to pick one moment from the issue, and we will then award the coveted Bwahaha Award. And I think, Chris, it's pretty fair to say we would both agree it's Creeper in the Tree, right? Uh, oh yeah, definitely. definitely. Okay, it's it's, it's got to be him with with the red paint can yep. and painting the you know painting the town red, as you said. Yeah, definitely making the jokes about guffaws and things like that. That that was great, hysterical. So, all right, there we go. Comedy gold. Perfect. All right, all right. Chris, you want to start us off here? What's what's your Bwahaha Award nomination? Well, I would say, you know, you would think it would be the one punch. It would be the punch itself, or it might be Beatles saying, one punch, one punch. <laughs> but I think that Black Canary's reaction to it is even funnier, and that's the Bwahaha moment. That's the moment that stuck out with me all these years. Folks, I am astounded to say this. But for the first time in the history of this podcast, the guest and I have both come up with the exact same wah-ha-ha moment. Congratulations, <gasps> Chris. You have somehow tapped into my psyche, and you are now on the same wavelength as me. I don't recommend you tell your wife, because that might go south for you. But I think it is fair to say the wah-ha-ha award will definitely go to Canary's comments of, I missed it. I missed it. I'm so depressed. That is absolutely hysterical. <laughs> it's it's the combination of her words, the way Bob Lappin uh, lettered it, because you know there's certain italicized words, her hand gestures, the tiny lettering, the, the the language that's used. It's it's a beautiful combination of all the creative forces involved, and she definitely wins, wins it. So it, we're definitely in agreement, right? Yes. agreement, and God, I feel so damn dirty for it. Yes, you should. Yes, you should. So, congratulations, Black Canary. Enjoy your Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Okay, listeners, this is it's actually a little awkward. Chris has to leave for a bit. He needs to go speak to Oberon in the uh, JLI Human Resources office. I don't. I didn't get the full details, but it's something about stealing Black Canary's leg warmers and wearing them around the embassy before we started recording. Uh, check the tag, lady. I brought those with me.
Yeah. Okay, Chris. Well, tell you what. Well, you get that squared away. Uh, you go on to the office, and I'm going to go ahead and read the listener feedback in a segment that I had to call... Justice Log. All right, now before I start the feedback, I gotta ask you, do you need more JLI in your life? I mean, really, who doesn't? Because there's more news, believe it or not. First off, over on the DC in the 80s blog, they did a great interview with J.M. DeMatteis. It was published on July 12th. Head out to their website, dcinthe80s.blogspot.ca, or you can find them on Facebook and Twitter. Great interview. They talk about JLI. They talk about spirituality. It's really good stuff. Next, you know all these Rebirth books DC's doing? Well, they just recently published Justice League Rebirth number 1, and they did a variant cover by Kevin Maguire, and it is the current Justice League lineup done in that classic JLI pose like issue number 1's cover. You know, Superman, Batman, Aquaman, and then they got the newer members like Simon Baz and Cyborg and folks like that. And this was an exclusive cover to a particular retailer, so you're not going to find this in your comic book stores. you got to order it online from a company called BuyMeToys.com. You can get it for 10 bucks. It looks great great. It's really well done, and it's a great homage to the old Justice League. And there's another new cover that's an homage to Justice League number one. It is, I kid you not, from Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yes, it's a title called KFC Presents Colonel Cores number two. And this is published by DC Comics. The cover's by Tom Grummet. And again, it's that classic JLI sort of pose from issue number one where they're all looking up, but all the people are various versions of Colonel Sanders. Now, while the concept is absolutely bonkers, it actually looks pretty cool. And you can get the comic for free on Comixology, so it's worth checking out. Now, on last episode, I talked about the Justice League International t-shirt from Geek's Crate. Well, I got mine in the mail, and it looks awesome. I love it. uh, This is the one that has the Justice League International number one cover, and it's huge, mega print sort of size. Because of the cut of the shirt, I recommend if you want to get one, you order it one size up from your normal t-shirt size, because it fits kind of like an athletic fit. And uh, I posted a picture on social media, and my buddy Mark Kalmbach photoshopped the the shirt and turned it into a Nort shirt. So it is absolutely hilarious. Thanks for that, Mark. And now I wish that Nort shirt was real. Finally, over on the Task Force X podcast, which is part of the Head Speaks Network, episode 23 covers Justice League International and Suicide Squad, both issues number 13, because there was that crossover. And this is, of course, done by Aaron Head Moss, who heads up that show, along with his guest on that one, Mr. Paul Hicks. So be sure to check it out, folks. All right. Going to get into a lot of your feedback here, but remember, if you want to comment about the show on social media, please use our hashtag, which is FWPodcasts, or you can tag me as JLI Podcast on Facebook or Twitter. As I said earlier, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans. Let's get to your iTunes reviews. Folks, these are so critical to help raise the profile of the show. The more iTunes reviews we get, the more the show gets noticed, the more people find us, and the larger this community will grow. So please, please, if you don't mind, go out to iTunes, take a moment, and leave a review. It would be greatly appreciated. And as a thank you, I'll read your entire review on the air. And if you're an international listener, please be sure to give me a heads up that you left a review. I have to filter iTunes to each particular country, so it would be helpful to know if you live in, I don't know, Zimbabwe, and you left me a review. I'll give it a look. And also, if you're international, let us know, because we'll assign you to a particular embassy. For example, our first iTunes review comes from Mike. He's from our Canadian embassy. In fact, he does a podcast called the Canadian Military History Podcast. He says, great show. This podcast is a fun look at the best run of the Justice League besides the satellite era. You can't beat JLA number 219 and 220. A great addition to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Thanks, Mike. Then we heard from Paul Hicks from our Australian embassy. He also hosts the Waiting for Doom podcast. It's his great podcast for a great comic series. Two hours of DC love and knowledge in every episode. Get on it. You won't be sorry. Thanks, Paul. 
Michael Bailey, previous guest on this show, and from the podcast Views in the Long Box, writes, Shag is doing the Lord's work. <laughs> he writes, funny, insightful, entertaining. These are three words I would use to describe this amazing show. Shag and his rotating stable of guests are talking about one of the best series DC's ever published and doing it in a fine style. The show has a mix of commentary and humor with a handful of regular features that make you feel like you're in the club after only one episode. You seriously need to listen to this show. Aw, thank you, Mike. Then we heard from Dr. Perky17. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's his birth name. Uh, he also runs the Closeout Comics website and the Facebook and Twitter. And he writes, 24 karat blue and gold. Remember when superheroes were fun? Even better, when they were funny? Relive that seminal Justice League run from the 80s. Host Shag and guests dive into the legendary Giffen and Demetrius McGuire stories. You'll be glad you did. Heard from Rod Pruitt, who goes by Lego Nightwing on social media. He writes, Oreos. On a scale from 1 to 10, I give this podcast 52 Oreos. <laughs> then we got one from, well, honestly, I have no idea who this is. But based on the reviews, they, they must listen to a number of our shows on our network. Their iTunes identity was just a bunch of hyphens. Anyway, they wrote, this podcast is hot. It's always fun to listen to Shag heckle his guest hosts while exploring DC Comics, especially in the good old days of the Blahaha Justice League. I can't wait to hear more of this podcast. Grab some Chocos and tune in today. Thank you, Mr. Mysterious Hyphen Man. And finally, Jay from New Bedford, Massachusetts writes, Wish I could give it more than five stars. If you're a huge JLI fan, a Justice League fan of any era, or are you a newbie looking to learn about the Justice League, you need to listen to the Justice League International Blah Ha Ha podcast. Do it for any of the above reasons or just because it's hosted by Shag. This podcast has rapidly joined my top five, uh, maybe even my top three. He goes on to say Raging Bullets and the podcast of Oa give us some tough competition. He goes, I'll be honest, I haven't personally read all of these issues, but now I'm pricing the trades, mostly because of this podcast and its host. Aw, well, thank you, Jay. I appreciate that. That concludes the iTunes reviews. Now we're going to be pulling comments from our website, emails we receive, social media, things like that. And I'm just going to be pulling bits and pieces, you know, sort of cherry-picking comments, because I honestly, I couldn't read all the comments you guys wrote. I, I put it in a Google document. It's 15 pages long. You guys are amazing. What a wonderful community we're building around the show. It's so exciting to read y'all's comments. Now, the comments I'm going to be reading are pretty much specific to JLI podcast number four, which was the introduction of Booster, and our guest host was Mike Gillis from the Radio vs. the Martians podcast. And, you know, I started thinking about it. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last episode, primarily because I'm old and going senile. But if you love Booster Gold, there are two great places on the internet you should be checking out. One is boosterific.com, amazing website dedicated to Booster Gold. It's really fantastic. It's been around a number of years. It's an incredible resource. In fact, I used it for research on this show. And then the Silver and Gold podcast, which is hosted by my buddies Jay Jones and Roy Cleary. It's celebrating Captain Adam and Booster Gold. They cover uh, an issue of one, one of their books each episode, and it's a absolute blast. So uh, please be sure to check out those folks. All right, into the comments. We heard from Jeremy Patrick from our Australian embassy. He writes, I've been enjoying the podcast since the very first episode and love having an excuse to reread my JLI comics on a monthly issue-by-issue -issue basis. Blue Beetle was my favorite superhero when I was a kid, so much that I convinced my mom to make a Blue Beetle costume for Halloween. The costume was terrible, but I was happy anyway. I did save this drawing that was sent to me as a member of the Elemental Colors fan club circa 1989 to 1990 when I was about 12 years old. I came across an advertisement for them in a letter page of a comic, and the group's organizer sent me some really nice homemade stuff. They sent me a picture of this thing. 
It is a hand-drawn sort of fan art of the JLI. They've got in the background, it's got the the logo that just JLI with the shield, and you've got booster, beetle, fire, and ice. And fire's kind of flying around. Ice is floating. Booster's getting ready to blast somebody. He's wearing a black jacket that he stole from Animal Man, probably. And then you see beetle, and you see the bug, and you see uh, the JLI ship. It's in this logo for EC, which stands for Elemental Colors. So th- this thing fascinates me. It's fan art from a fan club in that era. So I asked Jeremy some more questions on it. He says it's hand-colored with colored pencils, and even though the underlying art appears to be a photocopy, it's still a large investment of someone's time to sit there and color it. And uh, he remembers he, he remembers trading a few fan letters with the organizer, and there may have been a newsletter. I did some research. We haven't turned up much, but over on the Boosterific website, ah, look at that. I just mentioned them, didn't I? I was able to find a reference to this group. So Elemental Colors, again, circa 1990, and it was dedicated to Booster Gold, Blue Beetle, Guy Gardner, Fire and Ice. This Elemental Colors was a fanzine. So how fascinating. If anyone has any information on Elemental Colors, I would love to hear more about this. The whole idea of the fandom that would crop up around, you know, th- this comic that we're, we're studying, especially in a period before the internet where it's easy to communicate with each other. Wow, I would love to know more. In fact, on the Boosterific website, they listed another fan club from that period. This one's called Loggerheads International. Logger being a play on the Justice League International uh, letters page, which was called Justice Log. And they were around from apparently 1990 to 1994. And again, it was a newsletter. So if you have any information on Elemental Colors or Loggerheads International, please drop me a line. Let me know. I'd be love to hear more about it. All right, moving on. Got a very nice letter from Maggie S. Now, again, I'm just pulling bits and pieces here. She said uh, she gave us her origin story, and I, I'm a sucker for comic book origin stories, folks, so feel free to share those with me anytime. She says, I never really paid attention to comics until about a year and a half ago, but I always have loved Batman. I grew up watching Batman the Animated Series, Mask of the Phantasm, and various Batman films with my father after my parents divorced when I was very young. I had an emotional attachment to Batman, even early on, and it'd be years before I picked up a comic book. And then jumping a little forward, she says, when I met my fiancé three years ago, he started slowly introducing me to comics and superhero lore and patiently explaining and re-explaining the convoluted mess that was the comic book history. I now have a whole new appreciation for the art form, the creators, and most certainly the characters. Now, it was her fiancé that introduced her to Justice League International, and she says, I've read a few of the collected books now, and my fiancé and I have listened to your podcast in accompaniment with the stories. During your show with Michael Bailey, on issue number two, you reached out to your audience and asked if any of your listeners had been born post-Cold War and found JLI to be silly or dated. Well, sir, I was born in October of 1989, and I love the Justice League International. I've grown up with my fair share of 80s references, who hasn't really, and that probably helps with my appreciation and understanding of the era. I actually really like the 80s-ness of the JLI. I understand where each mention of capitalism, communism, and nuclear war were coming from. I know who Philip K. Dick was, roughly, and why people looked the way they did. But why so much with the big hair? <laughs> uh, I don't find that it's dated at all. In fact, I think the very 80s-ness of it has since become part of the run's character and does, in fact, add to the enjoyment of reading such fantastic stories. Wow! That was fantastic, Maggie. Thank you so much. And you know what, folks? That just goes to prove, once in a blue moon when I say something, somebody actually listens and answers. So, thank you, Maggie. Up next is David Ace Gutierrez, who's an executive producer of the Pod Dylan podcast. He says, great guest, Shag. Another strong episode and a great series. I never liked Booster, but always loved the blue and gold dynamic. And this one reminded me of why. Great job, guys. Then we heard from Chris Franklin. Ugh. Oh, well, he does something with the Firewater podcast, apparently. A show called Supermates. Another show called Power Records. And uh, apparently he's a workplace offender, I hear. That's the rumor going around. Anyway, he says, Well, I was all set to talk about Wild Dog on Arrow, but Shag ruined it. I half expect to hear Silverblade is next for live action. Maybe a Sonic Disruptors mid-season miniseries? 
<laughs> and then later on, he goes on to talk about Maguire. He says, the art is gorgeous. Just look at that panel of Guy mocking Batman, and you can see that Maguire could go dark and realistic, sort of like Neil Adams if he wanted to, but that would have obscured his awesome facial work. Then we heard from Rob Kelly, my podcasting life mate, who's also part of the Firewater Podcast Network. He does the Film and Water Podcast, the Pod Dylan Podcast, the Aquaman and Firestorm Podcast, the Who's Who Podcast, the Aquaman Shrine Blog. It's sad. I mean, the guy is just pasty as can be, never leaves the house. Anyway, he writes, this issue of Justice League was very important to me at the time, partly because it was the first new member issue. And since Green Arrow joined in Justice League number four, it felt like this new series was honoring that legacy by doing a similar thing for its fourth issue. JLA history was a big thing to me as a teenager, and so, intentional or not, I like symmetry. Related to that, I didn't know it at the time, but this was pretty much the last time any JLA book made a big deal about a new member joining. It could not have been more of an event to the old series, but during the Detroit era, members were coming and going and became much more casual, which bugged me. Batman never ever formally left, but he was just gone one issue and never returned. So booster joining felt like a return to the good old days. Little did I know after this, the lineup of the team would be almost constantly in flux, and that sense of, this is an important moment, was pretty much lost forever. So I'll always have a soft spot for this issue. It was the last of its kind. Now, um, this is Shag. I will take issue with what Rob says, partially because that's my job to give Rob some crap, but also to say, I would argue when Connor Hawk joined the J- JLA, Grant Morrison's JLA, that was a pretty big deal with him joining. The whole issue was dedicated to him. It was, it was a pretty great one. So Then we heard from Bradley Null. And I had talked about Watchmen being released on a monthly basis. And he said, you say you can't imagine what it was like to wait for the next issue of Watchmen? Well, I can. I was one of those who did back then. It was harder than waiting on the next issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths. But it was easier than waiting for the next Identity Crisis. Then Jeff R. commented, he said, it was made harder by the fact that the last three issues of Watchmen were massively late. And that was before the days when the internet provided accurate shipping information. So just a matter of show up, see if Watchmen happened to be there for months on end. And then Jeff Nettleton came in and said, amen. It's hard for the younger crowd to imagine what life was like before the internet and the constant flood of pre-production material from the publishers. In that area, you had to make do with Starlog, which is good for sci-fi movies, and things like Comic Buyer's Guide or Amazing Heroes for advanced info. Problem was, their info wasn't as far in advance, since most of the marketing came in the final stages. This is Shag now. I wasn't getting Watchmen and stuff like that back then, but I do remember reading magazines like Comic Scene, which was great for getting comic book info in advance. But yeah, it wasn't until really previews and then eventually the internet that it became easier to figure out when stuff was coming out. More from Bradley Nell. He says, I love this issue. He says, my first office job as a runner for an escrow company started this same, this same month, and I called the company car The Bug. That's awesome. I love it. Then we heard from Ryan Daly from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does the Secret Origins Podcast, Power of Fishnets, Give Me Those Star Wars, and blah, 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 filling some crap here, and he's a past guest on the show. He writes, it was another great episode, Shag, with possibly your best guest yet, or easily in the top three. Hmm. Considering that was only the fourth episode, Ryan, and you were one of those guests? Nice. Anyway, he goes on to say, I loved hearing Mike's impressions of both Guy Gardner and Nort. I'm not a big fan of Guy, because why would anyone actually like him? But if someone I loved was kidnapped, Guy Gardner would be one of the first people I recruited for the rescue mission. Or from my buddy Keith G. Baker, he says, I do need to take issue with the Rainbow Raider hate, though. It seems that folks are throwing shade at the Bates, Heck, Flash, Rogue. Mr. Bivolo deserves more than this derision. Hell, Jeff Johns liked the idea of the character so much that he killed off Roy G. Biv when he was writing The Flash so that he and Van Skyver could steal his power set to use later for the basis of the All, all the Feels Emotional Spectrum Core <laughs> in the pages of Green Lantern. That's fair enough, Keith. Fair enough. All right. Then our buddy Lucien Desar says, Great fracking episode, guys. I think Guy is my favorite in the JLI because he's such an idiot. But like you discussed in your podcast, he had moments of honest human qualities. 
Absolutely. Then we heard from Matthew Thomas Cody. He says, thanks for an, another excellent show with another excellent guest. I'm taking the challenge of reading one month at a time to coincide with the podcast. I'm going to fold in a bunch of other series to this reading project like Blue Beetle, Booster Gold, Captain Atom, Checkmate, Flash, Green Arrow, Green Lantern Corps, Suicide Squad, and the Superman books. I'd like the Monitor Duty segment because I would like to have my read of the different series jiving with the publication dates. But I have some catching up to do to make all that happen. The great thing is there are some fantastic podcasts that cover these series so I'm looking forward to diving in. Awesome. By the way, Matthew, I would recommend as you're going through your reading project, use Mike's Amazing World at DC Comics. They list all the release dates for the books, and you can search, and you can look at a month at a time. It's pretty awesome if you're doing a big reading project. Then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey at the Irish Embassy. Uh, he says, can you send some more embassy pens? We're running low on them here in the Irish Embassy. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say, I love the discussion on how Maguire's art emphasized the body language, letting you see what the characters were thinking. Another good example came at the end when Booster had accepted membership from Batman, then came to the TV report with Maxwell, Lord stating that he was the league's spokesman. As the rest of the leaguers are watching this, Maguire has Booster drawn with the towel he had hiding his face. Without words or thought balloons, you knew Booster was thinking, I have reached the pinnacle, joining the league, and this bozo's going to ruin it for me. Great art by Maguire. Then he goes on to say, the Booster-Beetle friendship started here, but in my mind, in the early days of the JLI, I felt Beetle and Scott had more of a buddy vibe. They did pair up in that first annual and were always the helmsman for the shuttle. Probably with the introduction of Big Barter in the series was when the Booster-Beetle pairing strengthened more as Scott dealt more with the married life. I guess Beetle and Booster became the bachelor boys of the JLI, with Scott being their married friend, who joined them on occasion when Barta let him let off some steam. <laughs> That's a good point, because there are a lot of times where Beetle and Mr. Miracle are sort of connected. And you'll see that in the next episode when we talk about the annual. Then we heard from Rift in the Australian Embassy, and he is apparently the Kilowog of the Australian Embassy. He says, another great episode, Shag, and another great guest. Mike was fantastic. Great to see the community growing, and each month seeing the same names coming back to leave comments. I totally agree, Rift. I love the community we're building here. Then we heard from Jeff Nettleden again. He says, uh, Guy as Biff Tannen is an apt description. The guy steps up to the plate while Biff is always a coward and a bully. Then he says, Booster was an interesting addition. He's not what you think of when you talk about a Justice League member, but so are most of the team. This is Definitely a group of misfits with a couple of JLA stalwarts to guide them. Booster fits right in. In many ways, I felt the Justice League matured Booster, if that's possible. I was indifferent to the character before this, but became a fan of him here. Through more as a duo with Blue Beetle. After this, he seemed a stronger character. Hmm. Very interesting perspective, Joe. Then we heard from Pat Sampson. It is a long box crusade. He said, I have never read the whole series of Justice League International in the post-crisis timeline. I have only a few issues when it would be part of a crossover. Because of this podcast and Secret Origins, I'm going to go back and pick up the trades and read along. Awesome. Pat, that's absolutely awesome. And then Tim Price left a comment. He says, so many great comments this month. These fans are just the best. Big thanks to you, Shag, for sharing them on the show. It's a hoot to hear my name. Absolutely. And I'm glad to hear the rest of the Boaha Horde as well. Boaha Horde. I kind of like that. That's nice, Tim. And there you go. You got to hear your name again. And then... Uh, this is the source of madness here, folks. Tim goes on to say, Ever since the comparison was made a Blue Beetle for Wash, I can't shake the Firefly theme. And here's my take on how the Justice League matches up. And he goes on to match up the entire cast of Firefly with the various Justice League members. You can check this out. It's all on the blog under Episode 4. Look at the comments for Tim Price. You'll see it. But I have to say, uh, great job with casting Jane with Guy Gardner. Makes a lot of sense. It's really, it, it's like the more I read that your, your matchings, I'm kind of like, huh, yeah, that makes 
makes sense. So check it out, folks, out there on the on the blog. Then we heard from Jared Albrick. He wrote in to say, My slightly amusing tale of discovering the JLI is my brother and I were army brats living in Germany in the late 1980s. And we were staunch Marvel boys back when picking a company meant something. Well, the military put strict weight limits on household goods for when you move, and comics weigh a lot. My brother had a friend moving back to the U.S., and that friend gave us all of his comics. DC Comics. Among the large box was JLI, starting with number one, and I think we went to about issue 10 or so. I immediately loved the JLI. It was so fresh and different from my Marvel books. And here's the funny part. Having never read any DC, I thought this was the Justice League. I didn't even know there was a revolution of sorts happening here. Just thought it was standard fare. Then I learned more about the more famous JLA and still love this JLI because it was mine. Now, Jared's a bit of a nut here. He's our fitness fanatic, and he listens to the podcast while he works out, runs and swims and things like that. And so far, he's clocked 21 miles listening to me ramble on. Whew, Jared, you're a crazy, crazy man. And then I started thinking, he said, wait a minute. Well, he ran and swam. So I, I messaged him. We went back and forth. Turns out he has got wa- a waterproof iPod. That is like the coolest thing. I didn't even know they made that. So I like to think that, you know, he's listening to me while he's swimming. Like, does that make me like Aquaman or something? Hmm. Then we heard from David Tony. He said, just started listening to this episode and wanted to comment on Scooby Apocalypse. As you mentioned, J.M. DeMatteis is writing it. He's also written three episodes of the Be Cool Scooby-Doo series. That's on Cartoon Network right now. It's the latest incarnation of the show. Let's just say he hits it out of the park there, too. The series itself is pretty comedic in tone overall, but his episodes are exceptionally funny. Awesome, David. Thank you for sharing that. Heard from Henry Santa Jr., who's uh, you can find over on the Night Flyer blog. That's Night with a K. He says, I don't know what I was thinking, but I didn't love this as a kid. So thank you for doing the show and making me re-examine and appreciate this series. He goes on to say, I'll continue to listen as long as you and your various co-hosts put the show out. Well, Henry, I think you're pretty set for the next five years. Heard from Rob Williams from the Generation X-Wing podcast. He says, loved Mike Gillis's view on Guy Gardner's character, the reasons for the human resource meetings, and his comparison to Nort to Jar Jar Banks. Perfect. His analysis of McGuire's art style of making heroes normal through their plain poses is very observant. By the way, I own all four issues of Wild Dog purely for the hockey mask, jersey, and Uzis. Rock on, 1980s DC Universe. <laughs> So I'm glad he reminded me that, yeah, Mike said that Guy Gardner's the reason they have human resource meetings. Hmm. Mr. Franklin, um, does that put you in the same ballpark as Guy Gardner? Hmm. Then we heard from my buddy Buck Roulette. He says, finally listen to episode three of the JLI podcast. I really want Christmas in July. Between the theme song and all the Ernest Saves Christmas talk, I wanted to throw up the lights and tree while singing Oh Holy Night and wearing the ugliest of ugly sweaters. Damn you. The only thing that stops me from doing it is it's 100 plus degrees in heat and I'm just too damn lazy. <laughs> well, Buck, Christmas will be here before you know it, buddy. Hang in there. Heard from Dale Dale. He says, for the first time ever in Justice League history, I felt sorry for Guy. I liked Guy at the end of his solo series. I forgot how despised he was in these early issues of JLI. He was really an unpopular member of the team. Yeah, Dale, he was. But he was comedic relief, and, you know, the way he's written, he kind of earned all that, you know, hatred. Heard from Justin Steiner. He says, just now read my 100th comic book of the year. He's talking about in single issues in digital form, and it was Justice League number three. And he read it originally after buying it at a drugstore back in 1987. He's rereading it to listen along with our podcast. Awesome, Justin. That's fantastic. Heard from Dallas Gibson. Dallas says they picked up the 1989 Mr. Miracle run. Excited to read these while I wait for next month's episode of the JLI podcast. Aw, thanks, Dallas. Heard from Dean Jones. He says he he literally fist-pumped, startling his girlfriend, when Mike Gillis called out his favorite JLI member because it's also mine. Ah, 
Awesome, Dean. Heard from Rod Pruitt. He says, I followed the teachings of Shang for a while now. I thought I understood finding my comic joy, but I knew nothing until I started listening to this podcast and rereading JLI. I didn't remember what true comic joy was. And uh, what Rod's referring to is I, I have this mantra, which is find your joy, which basically means life is short. We don't have enough time to waste reading comics you don't enjoy. So many of us get caught up in a character or a series and we say, oh, well, I've got every issue of, you know, Guano Man. I have to continue reading it, even if the writing sucks. No. No, you don't. If you're not enjoying it, stop reading it. Find something you enjoy. For me, right now, I'm loving these Justice League International comics. Sure, I've read them before. But you know what? When I read an issue, it brings me joy, and that's good for your health. So that's what I'm trying to preach, and that's what I'm telling people to do. Find your joy. And Rod says he certainly found it by rereading these comics. Awesome. They heard from my buddy Dr. Ange, who runs the Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, and he has been doing some uh, cheap bin diving. He looks like he picked up a bunch of comics from a 75-cent bin, and he's slowly building his collection of JLI. He, JLI is new to him, and so he, he sent us a picture. He picked up issue number three out of a 75-cent box. Oof! Good job, Dr. Ange. Heard from Anthony Kahn. He says, I've always equated the JLI with my high school days. My introductory was issue number four, which I purchased at the local hometown pharmacy immediately after finishing my first day of eighth grade. Fast forward five years, and I distinctly remember purchasing issue number 60 and reading it while lying on my girlfriend's bed while I was waiting her to get ready for our high school graduation, which was just a few hours afterwards. Wow! How cool is that, the way they sort of bookmark your life, man? That's really cool. Thank you for sharing that. Heard from Mark Lax. He says, I got into these books a little later around 1989 or 1990 but just fell in love with the characters it says this was a truly unique era for the justice league and while many may look back and think that they're mostly b-listers to me they will always be some of the most important characters of this era well i love me some of the big seven and certainly enjoyed some of the morrison stories the one thing jli had that morrison books didn't was heart you really fell in love with these characters whether you were laughing out loud or just empathizing with the feelings towards one another these character stories made you impatient for the next issue hmm. Very well said mark well said then we heard from John Moret. I'm probably mispronouncing that, John. Terribly sorry. He says, related to Justice League number three. Back in the day, there was a regular newspaper, the Comic Buyer's Guide. I remember it quite well, John. He says, one of the best columns, in my opinion, was The Law is an Ass, written by an actual lawyer, Robert Engersall. And he says, soon after Justice League number three came out, he discussed the, quote, superhuman gap with the West, end quote. I thought you might enjoy that, this footnote of sorts. And he gave us a link, and uh, it's it's over at worldfamouscomics.com, and they've gone back and published a lot of the old entries from the Comic Buyer's Guide of The Laws and Ass. And this one was, uh, let's see, The Laws and Ass, installment number 119, but was originally published as number 108 in the Comic Buyer's Guide, number 702, back in May 1st, 1987. Just look up installment 119. I'm sure you'll find it. And it talks about, again, that superhuman gap with the West, which was all inspired by the Justice League issue. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that, John. Then, uh, just to kind of name check some folks here, we got some nice support and nice comments from the following people. Terrence O'Neill, who does the Everybody Loves the Drake podcast, focused on Tim Drake. Rich Matsumoto, we heard from Engineer over on Twitter. Andrew in Belfast, he, uh, I like what Andrew's doing. He is posting in advance his guess of what the Bohaha Award is. Feel free to do that, folks. That would be a lot of fun. Then we heard from Jamie Gambell and Thomas Falvey, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing your last name, Thomas. Terribly sorry. Thomas claims he has been time-traveling to the future to listen to future episodes of the show. Well, Thomas, please drop me a line and let me know what I say on a future episodes. It would really help save me time in the prep for each episode. 
Then a quick shout-out to our buddy Mike Gillis, who was on the last episode. He gave us a nice shout-out on his Radio vs. the Martian website. Thank you for that. And then I want to give a shout-out to the folks that shared this show on their own social media, which means uh, Facebook or Twitter on their timelines. Now, it's a long list of names, folks. I realize that. However, these folks have shown the support and taken the time to promote this show through their own social media. So it's important to me that we recognize these individuals. This is probably the only time they're going to get mentioned. But you know what? They are all each an important, vital part of this community. And it's nearly 60 names, so buckle in. I will go through these as quick as possible. But thank you very much to Al Girding, Al Sedano, Andrew in Belfast, Ange, Birds of Prey Podcast, Boosterific.com, Bradley Knoll, Brian Yardley, Buck Roulette, Chris Franklin. Uh, maybe I take that back. Maybe I don't appreciate his help. Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics Blog, Daniel Butnick, David Gutierrez, DC in the 80s, Daniel LaRue Sutherland, Engineer, Federico Hernandez, Film and Water Podcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Jacob Edwards, Jake and Tom Conker, Jared West, Jeremiah Parker, Jonathan Brown, Kichi Baker, Cord Industries, Lodex, Mariano, Angel Pagano, Mario, Martin Gray, Matthew Cody, Michael Bailey, Michael Wagner, Michael Zumo, Mo Walker, Not Guano Man, Paul Hicks, Pod Dillon, Randy Caldwell, Rift, Rob Kelly, Rolled Spine Podcast, Ryan Daly, Saturday Detention Podcast, Silver and Gold Podcast, Son of Cthulhu, The Aquaman Shrine, The Hammer Strikes, The Table Round, Three is Company, Two True Freaks, Ultron is my Elvis, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Warlord Worlds, Willie Yarborough, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show. This community of JLI fans we're building together is fantastic, and it is better for your involvement. So please, keep those cards and letters coming, folks. The easiest way to drop us a line is over on our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. You can leave your comments there on the show posts, or you can hit us up on Facebook. Uh, it's JLI Podcast or Justice League International, Bwahaha Podcast. On Twitter, the handle's just JLI Podcast, or we have an email address, which is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Mr. Mike Gillis, who appeared last month on this show, and uh, who most of the feedback was about this month. And pretty much everyone loved Mike, and I don't know that they care for me very much, but that's okay. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and then hopefully Chris will be back from his beatdown, I meant to say his disciplinary meeting, with Oberon. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968 Doom Patrol Destroyed Issue 121 1976 The New Doom Patrol Showcase 94 1987 Doom Patrol Volume 2 Copperberg Lytle 1989 Morrison and Case Issue 19 1993 Pollack Issue 64 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 Giffen Clark Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast, because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com.
Okay, folks, we're back from break, and wait, let me look, and yep, it does appear that Chris is back from the Human Resources Office. I hope you've learned your lesson, young man. Well, Canary swore out a restraining order against me, so no more power fishnet guest spots in my future. Yeah, you lucky dog, you lucky dog. Well, my thanks, I think, to Chris Franklin for appearing on this very special episode of the show, folks. Chris, why don't you tell the listeners at home where they can find you on the interwebs? You can find me and my lovely wife, Cindy, on the Supermates podcast, and me and Shag's lovely life mate, Rob, on the Power <laughs> Records podcast, both right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Awesome. Well, thank you, Chris. I really do appreciate you being here. It was great to be here. I, I appreciate you having me on. It was an, an honor to cover the one punch. Hope we did you proud, Sean, because we were thinking about you while we did it. We hope you would have done what you would have done. It, it would have been a lot funnier if you'd been here, but we, we did have fun with it. So we carried on in your stead. Well put, sir. Well put. And thanks again. And folks, come back next episode for my coverage of Justice League Annual Number 1. If all goes well, it's actually going to be released in just a few weeks. Then we'll cover Justice League Number 6 next month. So look at that. You get a bonus episode. My present to you. For that coverage of that annual, we'll have another guest host to cover it with me. Thank goodness it won't be Chris. So who will it be? Sorry, everyone. You're just going to have to wonder. Yeah, you know what? What the hell? It's Diablo Frank, folks. And I'm pretty sure it's going to be an absolute train wreck. But the kind that you can't really take your eyes off. And hey, it's a bonus episode. Quit your belly aching. You're going to love it. Thanks for listening, folks. And until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Chris. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something something of it? still stop, Despero. But you and Nord are going to have to follow my orders to the letter. We're doomed. Now look, Bats, you can hatch all the plans you want, but from here on in, Guy Gardner's working alone. You so much as sneeze without my permission, you're going to regret it. That I'd like to see! One punch! <laughs> One punch!